Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Touchdowns All Day with John Barber podcast. The podcast that just made me realize, oh geez, I got a podcast. Oh no. I'm that guy. Hey, I got a podcast. Everybody out here has a podcast. The doula we got went for the baby. That's a podcast. A good one, apparently. And the doctor, a podcast. And everybody I talk to, they got a podcast here, a podcast there. And it's like, oh my God. I can't believe that I have a podcast too. I can't believe it. I'm that guy. You know what I mean? And like, what do I got going for me with the podcast? You know, you guys listen. There's enough people that listen to my podcast that I feel like maybe it's cool for me to have a podcast because a lot of people listen to mine, but it's, you know, it's still dorky to have a podcast, but it seems like, what am I winning some kind of popularity contest? I have lost every popularity contest in my entire life in high school. Oh my God. Couldn't win a popularity contest to save my life. And you know what? That, that was all in my head. I think everybody thought I was fine, but in my head, everybody couldn't stand me. It's such a weird thing. Maybe I'm. Maybe, maybe it wasn't in my head. I don't know. It's hard to tell. What was your high school like? Did it, could no one stand you in high school? Because you know, if you can just, if no one can stand you, play the guitar. That's what the guitar is for, you know. And you can get really good at it if everyone really, really, really can't stand you. And then, you know, I look back at it and I, I see guys that I went to high school with and, you know, and they're like, oh, dude, that's great. The man, love you. Great to see you. Blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, what? I thought you couldn't stand me. And it's like, no, that stuff's in your head. When you're 14 and 15 years old, the things that are in your head are probably wrong. And that's it. Your parents tell you that, but you can't fight it. You just have to go through this weird thing. So, welcome to the podcast where I keep it real. Let's keep it real, folks. This is an epic and fantastic episode. We have a very special guest. We have John Schwartz, the general of jam from SiriusXM, the man who invented the jam on station on Sirius. And now he does the fish station. We all know about that whole thing. But he invented bringing jam bands Two radio waves, which, you know, for us, it was a long time where that those were the only plays we got, you know, because God forbid we cut a song to below nine minutes. I mean, seriously, who are these guys? Every single song, who are the, what kind of band doesn't bother to give the station something that they can work with? I mean, what a bunch of arrogant, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what I would call myself, but, uh. Yeah, we screwed that one up multiple, multiple times. Uh, doesn't seem to matter. We have you guys. We have our fans, and we're very happy about that. And so, Jonathan Schwartz came into town to see the Grammys, and uh, he loves you guys so much that he came over to my house, and we cut a really great in-depth interview. Interesting thing to note about Mr. Schwartz is that at the very beginning of the Disco Biscuits time in, you know, the late 90s when we were playing Wetlands a lot and we were trying to go from band that's completely broke to band that has a show that's doing well. And Wetlands was that show. 
Jonathan Schwartz was a big reason why those shows were successful because he was a promoter. And he was part of that, we go to wetlands, do well, come home, you know, right basis for a day type of loop that we had going back then, which was a very successful loop. And it was a great time in my life. He was an important person, I think, for me to have come over and talk. It's a good thing about the podcast is I get to talk to people like that. Super excited to have him here. And we cover all this stuff. I mean, we really go deep. Uh, It's really fun. It's great. I'm super happy about it. And I want you guys to listen. So it's this episode... Jonathan Schwartz. We have a new sponsor with this episode. We have the Graystar Collective. So the Graystar Collective is out of Denver, Colorado, of course. They sell superior organic hemp and CBD products. They're a new company. They're they're just out the gate. They sell smokable hemp, pre-rolls, edibles, topicals, tinctures, and more. All of their products are federally compliant and dose accurately and effectively. So this CBD game is getting legit. I love it. Big fan of this thing. Welcome Graystar Collective to the Touchdowns All Day team. They are going to put their their new company, so they're going to put their website up and all that stuff. We don't have to rush them. If you guys want to be a part of it, just go to their Instagram page at Graystar Collective and give them a follow for a little while and see what they post. See what they post. They're supporting your podcast. See what they post, see what they put up there. We're going to try and bring this kind of great CBD product stuff to you guys as as often as possible because I like working with these startup companies, these young kids who are trying to make a business out of nothing. I love this. I love the vibe. I love the energy of all the, uh, they're just, you know, in the phone calls, everybody's got a good sense of humor. They're not, they're not, they want to be a part of the podcast. They don't, they don't want to know metrics and numbers and blah, 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 and all this silly stuff. They want to know, can you guys enjoy their product? Can they make a great product for you? I think Graystar Collective is going to be one of those companies. Another company that does that is the Osiris Podcast Network. Of course, we are part of that podcast network. They bring touchdowns all day to you. And they have a new podcast of which I'm on it. So it's about the story of Splice. It's called Let Creativity Flow. And I'm on episode two, and it's a three-episode series. So if you're going to an airport this weekend because you're flying to the Biscuit Show and you want to rip a few, check out Let Creativity Flow on the Osiris Podcast Network. We are proud members of that podcast network. So let me just give a shout out to Aspen Grove Tea. They made a, a blend called Autumn, which I mix with uh, coca and clove. That's my new tea blend. For all of you who are following along in the tea world, I mix the Aspen Grove Autumn with some coca and clove. If you're a tea person, you have those kind of things. And it's it's kind of gangster. It's like a CBD chai. It's really good. So shout out to Aspen Girl for making another great kind. I think I might like this one better than my last favorite, which was Rest. I think Autumn is my new favorite. So keep keep churning them out, boys. Love it. We're going to drop the interview. We're going to drop some music, a bunch of stuff. I have to pack, and I have to pack all this crazy stuff because of this coronavirus. And I don't know what to do about this. This crazy virus. And I've been following this virus for, for like two months now. So like people think I'm a little crazy. Because I've been watching all the videos of like what was going on in Wuhan. And everyone's like, it's not 28 days later. And I look at them like, yo, it's been 28 days later in Wuhan for 45 days now. What the fuck are you talking about? And I don't know. This thing freaks me out. I have to go to an airport flight of the show. So I got the face masks that one of the listeners of the show sent me. I got some Purell. I want to wear a motorcycle helmet, 
but I don't think they'll let me go to the airport like that. Like I want to, I have this, this like skiing helmet, which kind of makes me look like I'm on the short bus a little bit. And then I want to put some ski goggles on and like go full, full coverage of face. But I just have a feeling I'm going to run into a lot of problems if I go that crazy on this thing. But we're going to Philadelphia, folks. We're going to go to the show. We're going to play the show. Um, you know, we can't let our lifestyle be messed with by these silly microparticles. I mean, literally, a virus is like the smallest. The only reason viruses work is because they're so tiny that you can't really stop them all, you know, because they're so tiny. Like, there's no brain. There's no initiative. There's nothing there. This is a little tiny thing. So once your body learns how to fight it off, it's, it's done at that point. So, you know, it's weird though, right? Isn't it weird? I don't know. The world is weird. Like, I feel like literally two months ago, I didn't have a baby and there was no coronavirus. Now, two months later, I have a baby and there's a coronavirus and I'm just like, what What happened to the planet? I feel like, you know that thing that people talk about was the Mandela effect where there's like a, 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 like a, a, a break in space time. And things before are different after. I think it's like, and the examples are terribly dumb. Like the Bernstein's bears is actually the Berenstein bears. It's just like the craziest stuff that they use. And you could easily put it under a category of products that whose names get confused by a lot of people. You don't have to invent a, a schism in space time to explain why people think the Berenstein Bears is the Berenstein Bears. You don't need it. You don't need the schism. You're really going way too deep on what's going on. You know, to, what did we schism into a different dimension where the product names are slightly different, but everything else is basically the same. That's what the Mandela effect is. And people believe that shit. They believe it. It's crazy. It's crazy that they do. I'm all for it. I'm for it. It's cool that people are discussing stuff like that. I think that that's pretty cool. That even that that even gets discussed. Nobody discusses the methods at which a schism might occur. How does a schism happen? What's the trigger? None of that's discussed. It's just, oh, uh, you know, I used to think that Tom Cruise was Cruise with a K. I don't know. Who knows? But I feel like a schism occurred again where I had... You know, now a schism occurred and now I have a baby and, and the coronavirus is running around. And it's just like, what happens to the world now? And, you know, chances are really, really high that it kind of goes back to normal. Wash your hands. Uh, my buddy Dante says, wash your hands once an hour. I think that's aggressive. I, I told him I was going to wash them every three hours. He said, no, you got to wash them every hour. That sounds crazy, but that's what he said. And he's a smart guy. So I don't know. I think we're going to be fine. Uh, we're going to play concerts in the midst of the coronavirus, I think, which is crazy. But nobody in our organization wants to cancel anything. Nobody will. I'm on the I'm on the text like, just cancel it. Just cancel it. And I know I'm sorry, guys. I'm just being honest. Like, I don't care. I well, we got another show to play in two weeks. We'll play another one in four weeks. You know, we'll do it online for you. We'll do it. We'll go to like a barn somewhere and we'll play the show. And you can watch it like you watch Netflix. Right? Why not do that? Is that a cool thing? If you like that idea, tweet Bisco TV show at touchdowns all day. Hashtag touchdowns all day. Hashtag Bisco TV show. Do that. And if I get enough of those, then I know that, you know, 
we could make like a little Tuesday night concert and you guys are watching in your house. What do you got to go to? What do you got to go, you know, put on your helmet and your goggles and coronavirus your way to the show? Even though I feel like I'm probably already had the coronavirus because everybody got the flu last week. And I was like, oh, I have the flu. They probably all had the coronavirus. I didn't even realize it. So it's kind of the flu. Here we go. They, they're rebranding the flu for you and me. So let's talk about... Um, I think I'm off topic here. Let's get back to the show. So we're going to play three pieces of music today. And the theme song. We're going to play uh, 1228.97, which is the University College Hall in College Park, Maryland. And it's a Nug Huffer jam. And this is the uh, a show that Jonathan Schwartz references in our interview. And this Nug Huffer jam is how Jonathan Schwartz, who you guys know as the general, but us in Bisco world, we know him as Jonathan Transcendental Schwartz. And he's in my phone still to this day as Jonathan Transcendental Schwartz. So he just has never changed his number, um, which I find crazy. And then, uh, you know, this was the jam where he, after the show, he he came backstage and we were all like, how was it? What'd you think? What'd you think? And he goes, it was transcendental. And then we thought it was so, like, just hilariously over the top that we called him John Tran- Jonathan Transcendental Schwartz for at least six years after that. So be careful what you say to the band. It might become your nickname. Um, I think that's probably happened quite a bit. We're also going to play the 430 1999 Wetlands Morph Jam. And uh, according to Rich Steele, this is still considered one of the best things he's ever heard us play. It's 15 minutes of C-sharp funk. And then uh, it's like a rotation jam, but nobody leaves, nobody stops. And we spend a lot of time exploring octaves and just playing clear bell tones. And then around the 13 mark, it goes into complete chaos. Uh, He's never heard a Biscuits jam end up in a place like that. So this is really, really high praise for Rich Steele. And I think we're excited to listen to that. And then we're also going to listen to another band on the podcast here, which I'm going to try and, you know, I want to listen to more bands more. I want to more listen bands more listen, right? This band is called Southern Avenue. This is a band that Jonathan Schwartz manages currently. So that's his current job is he's the uh, DJ on the SiriusXM Fish channel, and he manages bands of Southern Avenue being the band. They were nominated for a Grammy. The lead singer is unbelievable. She's just such a fantastic singer. We're going to play the title track off their 2019 Grammy-nominated album, Keep On. People think that their sound is like a gospel-infused R&B with a rootsy rock feel, which is kind of what I listen to most of the time. So this is a new good band for me. They're on Spotify. Relics did a little bit of the news on them. They referred to Southern Avenue as a deeply soulful Memphis band that's turning the scene on its head. So go Relics for, uh, you know, what does that mean, turning the scene on its head? I don't know. It's a deeply soulful review. Oh my god, I gotta get on an airplane soon Oh my god, what am I doing? I wish I could just podcast all day, you know You guys are listening to this podcast You're like, don't quit your day job, dude I mean, correct, obviously, but still You know You know, this is uh, is gonna be a fun weekend I don't know how I'm gonna dress at the airport But it's going to be absurd And I may just wear, like, one of my stage outfits like a robe and then a, a helmet and then some goggles and gloves. I'm going to get some gloves. 
It's going to be an interesting trip to the airport, but it'll be worth it because we haven't played a show in forever. And I'm kind of like in the mood, you know what I mean? I'm in the mood to shred a little bit. I'm in the mood to play some music. It is uh, it is a great job that we have. Uh, we So, you know, we have these Philly shows. That's this weekend. We have... Uh, we're playing the Cap Theater at the end of the month in March. And... There's a couple biscuit shows that if you're if you want to get out see your friends, these are the chances to do it, and I think now's the time to do it earlier than later. And we still have Electric Forest that's going to happen, and we you know Camp Bisco's going to happen. So by the time the summer comes, these things these things get wiped out. All right, so let's do this right. We have the touchdowns all day with John Barber podcast. Get to know us, tweet at us, hashtag touchdowns all day. We love that you guys listen. Here's the theme song. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Oasis Pond Studios. We have a very, very special guest, one of my oldest friends in the music business, and a real leader of the jam band scene through his entire career in the music industry. One of the most important players in the scene to never pick up a guitar. You've picked up my guitar. No, I mean like... Not professionally. Not professionally. Not professionally. Everybody rocks a little bit in their own way, but... It's important when you're a guitar player to have other people in the scene who are innovators and entrepreneurs and creators so that I have a better place to go play the guitar. And you are one of those people, my friend. This is a very special interview on the podcast. John the General Schwartz. The artist formerly known as John Transcendental Schwartz. Yes, which is weird because I say... John Transcendental Schwartz. You are one of like two people in the world that still use that yeah, on occasion. Nobody has any idea what I'm talking about. Benji Eisen is the other who still 
But wasn't it your nickname, though, before Sirius? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the reason that nickname started was because of... I'll tell you the show it was. It was 12-28-97. It was a Walther Presents show at the Terrapin something in College Park, Maryland.
I want to say the Blue Terrapin, but that was in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. But whatever, it was whatever the hippie jam band bar was in College Park, Maryland, post Fish, twelve twenty eight ninety seven, and I was. I mean, it was so early on. Walther himself, when he was like a long haired hippie, mm-hmm. Tim Walther, founder of the All Good Festival, now does All Good Presents stuff all over whatever the Mid Atlantic area. I guess he was also, wasn't he the original promoter of Camp Bisco back at Oil City, Pennsylvania? He was. He was. Did Camp Bisco's one and two, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he, you're correct about that. He was doing a post-fish show with the Disco Biscuits. I went to the show. I was expecting, I went with my buddy from college, Dr. Todd Hagel. Yes. And he was, you know, visiting to come to see fish. And we went to the show and... I remember rushing after the fish show to get there and got lost like four times on the beltway because mm-hmm. that's what you do on the beltway. And we missed 295 to 495. It was like, I was so stressed out. And we get there and I was expecting like it to be like a fucking like, like rock concert. And it was me and Dr. Todd and like Tim Walther. <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe, you know, there was probably like 30 people there, but I was expecting it to be like, I'm like, how could more people not be here? Like I was... I was offended. Like, I was really offended. They couldn't find it either. They probably couldn't find it. They are probably stuck somewhere. They're like, four, nine to five, Towson. That definitely sparked something because I was blown away at this show. And I was relatively sober because I was driving on the Beltway and it was late at night. And I uh, was semi-responsible. I used to drive 110 miles an hour on that Beltway. Well, I was semi-responsible. And I remember, like having like a psychedelic transcendental experience totally sober at the show like i was blown away it was like one of the best shows i've ever been to i haven't listened to that show since we should maybe dig that up at some point we can have it bold i think you and mark came over to me after the show you recognized me from we met at that first show i told you about before when we were offline the gold rush bar and grill which i could talk more about also in a second you're like hey weren't you that guy that we met yeah i'm like dudes i'm like I just had like a transcendental experience, and right. and Brownsy was like, "Ah!" Like he lost it, loved it, and yeah. you and then you were like John Transcendental Schwartz. <laughs> it was just like such a huge word in like a shit hall with Tim Walther. Was literally Tim Walther himself was hanging up a hand drawn banner Walther presents behind the stage while you guys were playing because he didn't get it done before. <laughs> I don't know what else he had going on that day that he couldn't hang up a freaking banner that he made on a bedsheet, but. Uh, <laughs> handing out flyers. But he was handing out flyers. Like, that was the deal. So, yeah, that was the start of that nickname. That was the transcendental moment. Yes. And by the way, to this day, the only people that ever called me that, and it was something that it was on a regular basis, were like you, Mark, Lesser, the Disco Biscuits, and Benji Eisen. <laughs> and Benji, that's the only thing I think Benji has ever called me ever in the last 20 years. Yeah, that's funny because Benji was around a lot of those shows. He probably was at that show. Benji was probably at that show also. Yeah. And we thought like the transcendental thing at first was kind of a joke because it was obviously just such a huge word to use to describe the show. And we probably were like, oh, come on, the show sucked or something weird like that. But I still, for some reason, my phone books, as they have transferred from phone to phone to phone over the years, I still have transcendental in my phone book. It's fine. And, and, and you spelled it with a Z. Oh, really? you, made, you made it like a special <laughs> spelling, like, you know. The weird thing is when you went to Sirius and you went with the general, and that, I was hurt a little bit. <laughs> well, the general thing was that was a college nickname because when, you know, when we were 
in college, it was right around the Gulf War. And on every TV station all the time was General Schwarzkopf. Oh, right. And because I was Schwartz. Yeah, he was really famous. He was really famous. He was. So, like, I became, like, General Schwarzkopf. And then the Schwarzkopf just kind of fell off and it just became General. Right. So that's how that happened. Interesting. And when... You heard it here first, folks. When Sirius... Scoop. When Sirius launched in 2003, they did... A press release to like the general media that we were launching. It was called Jam Central at the time for the first six months or something. And uh, it was on 17. They did a little blurb about the original hosts. And we had to write like a little blurb about yourself. A little, yeah, because what the fuck do they I know hate, about? I you know, I hate that. doing that. So I decided to have fun with it. I'm like, Jonathan Schwartz, a.k.a. the general of Jam. Yes. <laughs> like, I totally, like, that. totally like, tongue in cheek. And it fucking stuck, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it stuck great. And I was a little bit depressed because I thought we had nicknamed you really well. I'm sorry. You did. <laughs> but uh, I was super psyched about your nickname. I thought you were going to ride that to radio star. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't alliterate enough. Like the alliteration yes. was the key. Unfortunately, alliteration, you know, goes along. A little alliteration goes quite a long yeah, way. It really matters, <laughs> especially when you have to say your name 400 times. An hour. Day. Yeah, every yeah. hour. It's funny, I also remember, I haven't thought about this in a while, when we were launching it, like the powers that be who are like radio guys, I was not a radio guy. Like that's why they hired me was because they wanted a guy that didn't sound like, hey, you're listening to, that was, you know, Foxtrot Zulu on Sirius 17, Jam Central. Coming up now. Yeah, why didn't they want a radio guy? I don't understand. They have radio guys everywhere else. Because A, like most terrestrial radio guys had no idea what a disco biscuit was. Right. And the other thing is they wanted it to sound like a couple of dudes sitting on their couch after pulling tubes talking about tunes. That's the vibe they wanted. Not like Phil and Ted stoner kind of vibe, but just like real people who care about it. They wanted like the passion. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's... But do they do that with every channel or is that just a Jam On specific thing? I could speak to Jam. That was a Jam On thing. And the guys who, the original guys that greenlit jam on were they were righteous dudes well let's talk about that because one of the stories i wanted you to tell is a story that you gave me a little bit of it yesterday i didn't know that story so i don't know if anybody else out there knows this story but how did you start the jam on radio station on sirius we had this idea and it stemmed from being at a disco biscuit show we went to the 9 30 club for two shows i believe it was 2000 Maybe two, like what, December 2000, maybe? So like 2001, right, maybe around 2001. So like season two of Survivor type of time. <laughs> Something like that. Richard Hatch might have, you know, Just won. Just one. Yeah, 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 totally. And we were coming back like, on a, it was like a Friday, Saturday night, like epic shows, 930 Club sold out, like insane. Yeah, Had a great round. time. We almost got arrested in the hotel. It's another story. Um <laughs> Arrested for driving a motorcycle down the hallway. Yeah, I wish. No, it was for, uh, you know, partaking in things that are now legal in the District of Columbia. (laughs) But apparently there was a lot of this legal, now legal activity emanating Mm. into the hallways and hotel security was called and it was not a pretty sight. Thankfully, live to tell. But that's not the point of the story. Mm -hmm. So we were driving back from D.C. on 95 also partaking in this now legal, you know, activity. We're smoking Literally. a spliff on the road. Do it if you, smoke yeah. them if you got smoke them. Smoke them if you got them. And we see 
on the side, on the left side of I-95 was like a building that said XM. And we barely knew what XM was. No one knew what XM was or Sirius was. This was in 2001. I mean, who knew what satellite radio was? Maybe you vaguely heard of it, but no one knew. No one had it. It didn't exist. No one had it. It, was, it wasn't a thing. Like It was I not a thing. I still don't know how they get a satellite to my car. Like, is there a satellite following my car around? How many satellites are there? Well, everyone that has it has their own personal satellite following them. You just can't see it. So I was with Andy Bernstein, your friend of mine, Bernstein and Chasnow fame. Great skier. Great, great skier. Yeah. Posted a funny skiing video today on the Facebook. Anyway, he's we, good at, I like that. He's a little GoPro thing. Yeah. yeah. It's cute. So we were driving back to the city. Lit. Just the two of you. Just the two of us. It was romantic. We're driving nice. back together. And we just started riffing about XM, satellite radio, and potentially, like, and, and, you know, some people may not remember that Andy, before he, you know, founded Headcount with Mark Brownstein of the Disco Biscuits, he was a sports journal, a sports business journalist. I totally forgot about that. And he was he very was. well respected for a number of publications, and he was actually an expert in the business of hockey. Yeah. He was. I think he goes to every single Rangers game. He goes to a lot of Rangers games. We went to Fish and Hampton in 2003, little side story. And I think it was like the Calgary NHL team Mm. didn't make payroll. And they were trying to find Andy Bernstein for a live interview for Hockey Night in Canada, which is the biggest show in Canada. And they couldn't find Andy because we were at Hampton to see Fish. And they finally got through to him. And they say, we have an affiliate in some place in Virginia, we're going to come to your hotel room and we're going to make it. So he's like, I don't have a jacket. I don't have a tie. We'll bring you anything you need. And they turned our hotel room into a little studio. They had those inverted umbrella things and lights and basically did Hockey Night in Canada in our hotel room so Andy could talk about like wow. this NHL team because he was the expert on how they did not make payroll. It was a crazy thing. So that was Andy Bernstein. So you're in the hotel room with this guy who is on television doing a spot he was, for Hockey Night in Canada right in front of you in the hotel. Yes, he was wearing like cargo shorts and like they gave him like a shirt and a tie and yes. a jacket. He like, did that. I saw him do that. He so, did that quite a bit actually back in the day. And he was like, you know, he was like, we heard this up. I've got to get to the lot. You know, it was, it was, right. it was a funny scene. So anyway, that <laughs> was Andy Bernstein. Like, he was, you know, he was a hippie concert. He was like really, you know, that was his deal. But he also had a book called The Farmer's Almanac, The Unofficial Guide to Fish. And they did about six, they did exactly six different editions. Penguin, Putnam Publishing actually picked up the last couple. It was a real thing. It was a real thing. Um, that started, he used to give out these tour extras on Fish Tour, which was, it was really, that's, that was Andy. That was his, his alter ego. So we had this idea, like we were thinking about, get back to satellite radio, like what if one of these newfangled companies had a channel dedicated to jam bands, to our scene. You could potentially get tens of thousands of subscribers for this one channel alone. And then they can get the Blues channel and they can listen to CNN and they can listen to whatever. But there's no other out. There was no other national outlet. There was not. And still not. For our world. So we went on a mission. We're on a mission from God. That's how we felt. And we created like a whole business deck with pretty pictures and stats and this 
And my day job, I was like marketing director at the New Relics, which is another story, like the Relics thing and how that changed ownership. And we were basically tasked to make it relevant and cool and not an old, stupid tape trading magazine with letters to prisoners who I love. But that's what it wasn't a respected publication. Right. So is New Relics this Steve is new, Bernstein? Yes. Notes. Now there's new New Relics. Then there's new New Relics of Pete right. Shapiro. Yes. Right. Who is also involved in New Relics. Right. You know, he yes. was he was one of our board members and, you know, and partners on the Jammy Awards, which is anyway. I think the Jammies need to come back. I, I agree. I think it was a great idea. We so were, you guys are in the car. So we had this about, idea. So you made a deck for it. You we made, made a, a business deck, plan. And I knew we got to the head of programming for XM. We got to the guy who for Sirius and we went in and had meetings. And the whole idea for Did you wear me, a suit in those meetings? I didn't wear a suit, but I was business cash. Business cash. You know, it's rock and roll. Do you me. bring a bottle of whiskey or something? Like how do you we how do you say hello? Hello. Is there pelts <laughs> that's transferred from think, person to person? <laughs> pelts, yes. We brought pelts. <laughs> Wampum. <Yeah. laughs> I brought my best snow dog and Yes, that's what we did. Yeah couple of, uh, yeah. So anyway, we went to both of them. And the one at Sirius, and I knew one of the rock programmers at Sirius, this guy named Lenny Block. Lenny Block oh, I knew was Lenny a Block. DJ on WDHA in Jersey. Right. And I met him through there, through my Relics things. And then he was at Sirius, and he just called Relics to get a subscription sent over there, and we became friendly. So Lenny got me in the door there. And my whole thing was to brand it. The Relics Channel. That was my marketing play because I wanted it as exposure for Relics. And I also thought that Relics had, I don't know if gravitas is the word, but it definitely lent an air of credibility to it. Because, you know, our scene is very, it's organic and it's very finicky. And if it was just like the Serious Jam Channel, they would be like, fuck is this shit? Like, how do they know about it? But if it was Relics, like, okay, Relics knows what they're doing in sure. this world. This is their world, and now they're curating a Exactly, a exactly. It would and be- this is similar, I'm taking a page out of your playbook with this podcast, because all I'm doing is curating Disco Biscuit jam moments and light comedy for the fan base. It's light comedy. Light comedy. So we... Uh, Went in, like Lenny introduced us to that, I forgot who the woman was at the time, was head of music programming. Wasn't feeling it at all, like bad <laughs> vibes. like Full rejection. Like full rejection, so not into it, like so barely <laughs> wanted to be in the meeting. It was totally like What do you late. do after a meeting like that, dude? Did, we went to the bar and had a drink. Yourself, no, dude, we're dude. like, we were, Lenny was like so apologetic. He was like, dude, I get it. Like, we're going to make this happen at some point. Mm-hmm. The point is not now, but like, I believe in this idea. We'll figure it out. What was her main criteria? What was her main knock against the idea? She didn't know what the fuck a jam band was. Like, she didn't know, like, she... Classic knock. Like, she doesn't know, like... Fuck is fish like that's yeah. the biggest band like like I've never heard of them that what are they on MTV like do they have a I've never heard them on the radio like that's your biggest like you know and MTV was still, still a thing back then it was still a thing back then still a thing it was more road rules kind of that yes. thing but it was still a thing people were like griping about how they didn't play music anymore right. but yeah. it was still a thing it was still a thing Puck was a huge star huge yo yo this is Eric from the grind yeah. <laughs> Remote Control, that was a cool Remote show. Remote Control is a show, the, the one they Colin did in Quinn. Times Square. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, TRL Live. TRL with Carson. Yeah, Fish isn't on TRL Live. No. Why, why are we doing a Fish channel? So right. anyway, she didn't get it. Then we finally got to this guy who's considered a radio pioneer in terrestrial broadcasting. 
a guy named Lee Abrams. Oh. And Lee Abrams, very interesting guy, very polarizing guy in the world of radio. I don't remember all the details, but basically he was the guy that figured out like playlists and formulaic things. And anyway, Google him. It's very interesting. The business of radio programming. So anyway, right. he was the chief programming officer for XM Radio. They were separate companies back then, Sirius right. and XM. They were competitive. They were very competitive and XM was XM winning. XM was winning, was, was, for sure. He was absolutely winning. Mm-hmm. They had better name, better marketing. This is my opinion. It's not, for, you know, but... Uh, you I agree know, with both those statements. AM, FM, XM. Like, right. that's cool. Made sense and nobody has any idea what Sirius what, is still to this day. Yeah, so... Anywho, we but, we got a meeting with Lee Abrams. Right. And because we're like hippie jam band fans, it just so happened we planned that meeting when Widespread Panic was playing at the Meriwether Post Pavilion. Mm. They hooked us up with tickets and we were going to bring him to the show and then he bailed on the show. So Andy and I went and we had a great meeting with this guy. Like he gets it. He's like, dude, like my kid's a fish head. Like it just, you know, blew off spring break with the family to go see shows for three weeks. Like <laughs> he got it. He's like, but we're not adding any extra channels. Mm. We have unlimited channels, but we can't. He, he's like, we're not adding any extra channels. And we have, you know, we kind of have the jam thing covered. We have a jam prog rock thing. I go, yeah, but the prog rock fans hate the jam bands on the channel. And the jam band fans hate the prog rock. Like, you know, it's a... It's a very weird thing. It's a very weird thing. Like, you would think it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense. They didn't get in. So, after we had these couple meetings, and this story is taking a really long time, and I apologize, but anyway. But this is the story of the Nexus. This is so good. Andy says to me, listen, dude, like, I'm done. You know, like, if you want to keep on working on this, because it's your job in a way, like, feel free, take the ball, run with it. He's like, but I'm, I'm out. Right, and you don't want to hear that as a person, but for you, yeah, yeah, like I was like, it this was kind of your day job in a way. It was kind of my day job. It was part, it made it was a cool little you know entrepreneurial side of my day job. It makes a lot of sense for you on a day to day. For him, he's starting headcount. He's doing all this other stuff. Yeah, he's got he's got a day job that's not related to music in the slightest. Right, he's got to put on a fake tie and talk about <laughs> hockey. hockey. Yeah. Out of the blue, you know, we started this mission like December of two thousand one. Yeah, and this was two thousand three. Wow. So I've been like kind of working on this in the background and kept it sort of going. That's here impressive. It's a long time. Lenny Block calls me up the, from before. The guy we met with at Sirius originally, formerly of WDHA in Jersey, calls me up. He's like, Schwartz, we've got a new head of programming now, music programming. Will you come and give the pitch one more time? Oh, I like that. And he remembered you, and he yeah, figured... Yeah, yeah, He's like, it was important to him, too. He's a deadhead. Like, he wanted a home for the... He wanted to be able to drive to his house in Jersey and listen to a cool channel of music that he likes. Was there a Grateful Dead channel no, at that point? No, Grateful Dead was a relatively new thing. Interesting. So, there was nothing like this. So, so Jam On precedes the Grateful Dead channel. By years. Wow. Years. Do you own the Grateful Dead channel, too? You Grateful kinda... Dead was all my deal. So. That was your deal, too. Not the channel, but the whole Grateful Dead thing. The whole, I invented the Grateful Dead. Anyway, so... <laughs> you look great. You thank look you. better than, than most thank of you. the... <laughs> you so, look so healthy for... Thank you. Thank you. For acid testing. Yeah. Well, you know. Test, practice makes perfect. Do you think if you just acid tested and didn't do anything else... It would age you like it seems to age people who do acid testing with everything. I think if you did acid testing, you'd end up like the guy we saw at the comedy store last night. So we. Oh my God, that was bad. So we. um, So Lenny calls me into the meeting Mm -hmm. and he had me meet with the new head of music programming, a guy named Joel Salkowitz. 
And okay. Joel is a seasoned radio vet also. Mm-hmm. And I literally gave So they get a lot of money. They're throwing pros at this situation. They were definitely trying to make a go of this satellite radio thing. And Can't blame them. I sat down with Lenny in Joel's office, and Lenny's like, you're up. And I gave him... It was literally like a 90-second elevator pitch. Right. You know, what they say when in startup world, as you know, they try to... You have to get your pitch down to 90 seconds. Like, so you, you had like, honed it at that point. I do. It, it was honed it, but like, it was like... I felt it. It was me. Right. You know, like it was, and I gave him the pitch and Joel leans across his desk, takes off his glasses and says, Schwartz, I went to Hartford. Max Creek was my favorite band. Let's do this. And uh, I was like, really? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> I'm Max Creek to this day has hardcore fans. It's they, unbelievable. Yeah, Mike Gordon being one of them. Yeah. So uh great band. But we're hundred percent non-commercial on the music channel, so we can't brand it the relics channel, but I want you on the air. I'm like, but that wasn't the point of this exercise. I'm right. not a DJ. He's like, that's why I want you on the air. Like wow. he's like, you're passionate about it. Like you've been working on this for years because you clearly appreciate the scene. You love the music and that's what I want communicated on the air and I was like well you know I'm real busy da, 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 da. and they showed me the studios and the studios are amazing like it's they're super impressive even more impressive back then because there wasn't anything else like that I mean they had a satellite control station from the lobby back it was like insane I was like <laughs> like yeah I can do this you know yeah like, it's pretty so, cool and Lenny like was the program director and they didn't have music so like I would just raid the relics CD bins at night and bring them to Sirius. And we would sit there and physically, we'd order pizza and we'd sit there and drink beer and, a pe- and we would physically rip CDs. Me, Lenny, Adam Foley. Remember Adam Foley, the photographer, former yeah. photographer, still a photographer. He was one of the originals. And we would sit there. Adam and- Foley's been to over 100 Disco Viscous shows, I would imagine. Yeah, so we would rip CDs ourselves to get it into the database. So we had music to play on the channel. So boring. Such a boring job. We were on a mission from God. Were you smoking the weed that would eventually be legal in the offices? No, absolutely not. No, no, no we couldn't. It was good. It's a corporate, it's an office in New York City. Maybe we went down to the sidewalk and, you know, had, yeah. a, had a dugout or something. I can't, I don't remember that part, but I do remember we would definitely. It's hard to burn CDs without weed. It's we really would definitely like rip CDs. We would pull in interns and rip this and rip that. And like, it was a full, it was a full-time gig. Yeah. But that's what we did. So did you leave Relics at that point? No, I was doing both. Doing both. Doing both. That's a pure entrepreneurial spirit is when you're working for multiple companies at the same time and making it work because there's a synergy there. It was great for Relics Yeah. that they had someone like, I couldn't call it Relics, but I could say, hey, you know, uh, new track by Michael Frondi who happens to be on the cover of Relics this month. You know, I read this thing, you know, so like you you could tie it in organically. It was great for Sirius because they had a dude that worked for Relics. So it showed, you know, they had Jonathan Schwartz, aka the General of Jam from Relics Magazine. So it gave them a sense of, you know, it lends some credence to their initial program offerings. So if you were able to become John the General Schwartz kind of not on purpose, but just based on passion and hard work and right place, right time that, you know, you created all on your own. I mean, the whole radio station you created on your own. Well, no, I mean, it's definitely a team. It was, you know, it wasn't just me, but it was multiple people who yeah. had a similar vision at the right place and right time. 
So when they make the Grateful Dead channel, do you pitch yourself as a DJ to that channel? No, they, you know, no, I did not. No. No, they were unhosted. They wanted people that were really more intimately involved. Like they have Dave Lemieux, the Grateful Dead archivist. They had, you know, members of the band do stuff. They wanted to keep that very separate. But, you know, they have David Gans. Right. Who basically pioneered, if you want to talk about it, he pioneered jam music effectively. He had the first jam radio show, I think. Syndicated internationally, Grateful Dead Hour on like 100,000 stations worldwide. He's got a great voice. No one knows more about the Grateful Dead than (laughs) David Gans. He's also a talented musician, so he has that sort of, you know, bent to it. And he can really analyze the music way better than I can from a musician standpoint. For sure. David Gans is awesome. And he had Gary Lambert as his co-host, who was, for years, did the Grateful Dead Almanac. And I've been a guest on their show. For fair thee well, they brought me as a co-host because they needed someone to speak about, like, Trey and, hit, you know, someone who could talk about that side because they didn't have that level, you know? Yeah. They didn't know that much about, they knew about Fish. They listened, I'm sure. But, but they, they were not. They're not going to go they're as not, deep as you're going to go. They didn't know Fish. And so at Fair Thee Well, they actually brought me to Chicago to be kind of like the Trey color analyst on their broadcast. Right. Which was like the best weekend of my life. (laughs) I met David Gans and hung out with him. And he kind of, it kind of felt like hanging out with what Bob Ross would be like if he were still alive. Like (laughs) Bob Ross was a hippie into music. Bob Ross was into the dead and wanted to hang out and talk about music. That's how it was very like warm and just nice and very positive guy, super chilled out. Yeah. I, I had a great time with him. We, we were talking music the whole time. I was surprised at how much he knew about what I was doing because he did know what I was up to, and I was just completely shocked about that. Dave's a good guy, man. So that so I've been a host. I've been a guest on their show multiple times fairly well, but before, like, they would have me run in and cut some breaks with them just if it was a slow news day on uh, their Tales from the Golden Road, they'd have me come in and... It was a good, like, synergy. So you developed Jam On as a, just a stoned idea turned good. Then that leads to, with the David Gans energy, a Grateful Dead channel, which is my favorite channel on Sirius. And then Jam On switches over to Fish, which is obviously if you have a Grateful Dead channel, you need to have a Fish channel at this point, right? And then you are... Since you're kind of the expert on fish, are you immediately a DJ at fish, or how does that work? Um, Pretty quickly, they transitioned me from from one to the other within a few days. Once they figured out what fish radio would become, I mean, they launched fish radio, but they did it so quickly that they didn't really know what it was or what it was going to be, other than a channel that played a lot of fish and would have band interaction. But pretty quickly, they brought, I mean, within like three days, they brought me on air and I've been on ever since. So what is your job on Fish Radio now? On Fish Radio, I'm a daily host, much like I was on Jam On. So you have a show every day? I'm on, yeah, I, I do mornings from 9 a.m. till mm-hmm. about 3 p.m. And then weekends, I do a little bit more. Well, you do mornings 9 a.m. to 3 p.m.? You do a six-hour show every morning? I do a six-hour show every morning. How do you? How does anyone do that? That's longer than like Howard the, doesn't even do. Six well, hours. it's 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 magic. It's radio magic. It's unbelievable. It's radio magic. Let me ask you a question about fish with my fish hat on. Go ahead. 
Did you have any early fish aha moments that may have influenced the way you approached playing the guitar, whether it was something phrasing, tone, improvisational sort of that whole thing, or even just like, hey, like I can do that. Like, was there ever a moment you had being at a fish show that led you to change or improve your style of playing? There's a lot. There's a ton of things. I mean, I, what was the first, I stole first, more good ideas from Fish than any other band. I also have things that I don't do because Fish does them. For instance, I don't use any tube screamers at all. I have never, I've never gone near that pedal because that belongs to them. So, and I feel like it's signature to those guys. So I won't use it. And so I'll do stuff that's different. But I also like philosophically i like their approach i've always liked their approach philosophically and i haven't found that philosophy in really any other bands was there a show that you went to that had that aha moment for you and if so what was it the first thing that comes to your mind for sure uh, i went to a show called arrowhead ranch 1990 when i was in my teens that was like july 91 yeah in parksville new york yeah and i went there as a fifth wheel who were the other four wheels? It was, it was these two couples. Me and my two friends at the time, and they both brought girls with them that I didn't know were going to like meet up with them and stuff. So it was the three of us were going, but then these two girls met up with them. And at that age, it was like I was hanging out with two guys who were just in a, a sleeping bag with some girl the entire weekend. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you walk back to the camp and there's... You know, Pat and his girl in one sleeping bag. They're like Robin Amber. Yeah, just in, <laughs> exactly, in the sleeping bag the whole weekend. Like, I don't even think they went to the show. They sat at the fire and went to the sleeping bag. So I went to the show, and I was kind of too young to meet anyone. So I just watched the band play. With the giant country horns, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and I even met Mike randomly really? backstage. I don't know how I got backstage. I met Mike, he completely blew me off immediately, which he sh- probably should have done. done, yeah. And I was just kind of wandering around, like, where am I? What am I doing here? Like, and then I would go back to the campsite, and I have four friends all on mushrooms canoodling the whole time. And I'm just <laughs> like, oh, man, you guys are the worst. He didn't share any mushrooms with me. And I was just walking around, like, this is before, like, I knew how to purchase anything. So I was just walking around, like... Absorbing it in and just taking it all in, like what planet am I on? At that time, there was a thing that I went to with my brother before that, which was a giant kegger on a mountain with no bands at all. It was just on a mountain, and everybody would bring kegs and camp, hang out for three days and drink beer, take acid and drink beer. And and I think I played the keg with a turkey baster for 45 minutes one night or something. It was it was a ridiculous hangout in the woods, like we used to do back then. And Arrowhead Ranch was like that. With fish. With the band playing, you right. know? And the band was really, really good. So, you know, they played a lot of, they played Gala Papyrus, which was, to me, an amazing compositional piece of work. I'd already written down to the bottom at that point. I'd already written some stuff. So I was already, like, kind of playing music and writing music. And I think I knew how to play half the songs at that point. I was very into the fact that that musical section existed in Gala and there was a band that was like, okay, we're going to break from this song and do this kind of insane classical music up and down thing that's crazy and super well put together. And they had a hundred songs like that. And to me, it was just like, wow, I could watch these guys all day long. So it wasn't 
like a party weekend for me. It wasn't a scene weekend. It was going to school. It was going to school. I was watching some really, really great music being played right in front of me. I was watching them do it. I think, uh, I don't know. I feel like somebody was in a cast or something. Like, I feel like it wasn't rock and roll. It was like, you know, it was like going to see like a Mozart concert or something like that. So, but yeah, that show was great. And then... One year I sat in the front row of the balcony at Saratoga Performing Arts Center or SPAC or whatever. Right, right, right. I sat in the front row of the balcony for the whole show. I didn't move for the whole show. And they were just on one that night. And it was really, it was just like, wow, this is great. This is really amazing. So flash forward to like the summer of 2001, 2002-ish. And you're playing SPAC. And I don't... Yeah. First of three with Rat Dog and Phil Lesh and friends. Essentially, and I thought about that night. You're opening up for the Grateful Dead. Yeah, at SPAC. And I thought about my SPAC night there because I stopped going to see Fish in '95 or '96 because it was just like I think I learned what I needed to learn, and I needed to go down my own road. You know, I needed to do my path. I needed to look. I went through a really heavy, like, Steve Coleman and the Five Elements period. I went through a Stravinsky period, which sucked for everyone whose room was near my room. I went, was going into the orb and orbital and stuff like that. So I was going down to these other roads, and uh, we played some show, and I just heard a couple tray licks in the guitar. I listened to the show after the show, and I heard just a couple, like, licks that were just, like, Straight out of a fish show, and I was like, "All right, I gotta stop listening to this band." I remember specifically one time you guys were playing a festival at Wilmer's Park in Brandywine, Maryland, in 1998. You were headlining it in '98, and I got a ride back with you guys in the van. Oh boy! It was driving back to Philly to your house in Upper Darby, great house, where I think we. Stayed up all night watching all of the Godfather movies sequentially. Start. We started at like six in the morning. We were like, you know, I felt like we were in that scene from Boogie Nights. Like, can I call you mommy? But we're like watching the Godfather with like darkened windows. Like we didn't leave the room. Um, Very psychedelic. It was a psychedelic concert too. It was a very psychedelic concert. And I remember we were in the van driving back to Philly. And I had a new fish tape with me that my friend... Taper Phil from Nashville had spun and it sounded great. And I don't remember, there was something about it. I was like, You guys want to listen to it? And uh, Sammy was like, We don't listen to fish in the van. Yeah. Like he was so like angry about it. He was, yeah. We don't listen to fish in the van. We also did, yeah. There and, was I was, a- and I was like, Why not? He's like, Because then everyone's going to say, Well, you sound like, you don't want us to sound like fish, do you? You know, so, yeah. so Brownstein's like, Put it on. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yeah, let's listen. Let's hear what Fish is doing in 98. I haven't listened to Fish in like four years. <laughs> and then we put it on and pretty, and it was like a sick show from like, yes, I think it was like 98. It was a, like a week before the show probably happened. And pretty soon, like we were all like grooving in the van and even Sammy was like, all right then. <laughs> but I remember specifically that we don't listen to Fish in the van because we don't want to sound like Fish. Thank you. 
Yeah, it's true. I mean, and Fish, they used to listen to James Brown in the bus because they wanted to sound more like, like James, James Brown. Brown, you know? And it's just like, I get that. That's Music is very subliminal. And if you're not playing the subliminal game, you're probably going to lose. You know, the Biscuits, we do this now with Tractor Beam, where we just listen to a lot of Tractor Beam, and we just play a lot of stuff, and it's just cold, dope dance music, you know? And it makes us better at just dance music. We had a list of things we didn't listen to in the van. The funniest one was The Wall by Pink Floyd. That was not allowed in the van because we had periods of time where we would listen to The Wall, and The Wall is about Pink Floyd breaking up, and then we would break up <laughs> after we would like go on tour, and then listen somebody to the would, wall. We listen to the wall. Four days later, the band's totally broken up, and everybody's going home, and we're canceling shows. And finally, we were like, maybe it's the wall. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't listen to that album anymore. And and we didn't break up for like a month after. Which is interesting because the guy that produced the wall, Bob Ezrin, actually produced Fish's album after they got back together. Whoa. Huh. That's weird. That's interesting. Speaking of the wall, well, it's not, I remember, or Pink Floyd, and going back to that first Disco Biscuit show that I have a conscious memory of, like, we're going to see the Disco Biscuits. Allegedly, I may have seen, in, may have been playing at a Wetland show before, but I was probably there to meet chicks. But anyway, it was um, July-ish of 1997 at a place that was literally an empty parking lot next to the Gold Rush Bar and Grill all the way on the west side of Manhattan by the uh, Henry Hudson Parkway. And it was a guy named, a friend of mine named Greg Schenken. Right. Promoted the show. He somehow knew someone who got him this parking lot. They had a stage of sorts. That's right. That's right. We played Little Betty Boop at that show, I think. And you played something into Run Like Hell. Mm -hmm. And the place like exploded even like people like walking down the streets of new york city are like what the fuck is going on is pink floyd playing in the yeah. parking lot of the cold rush bar and grill <laughs> <laughs> like how did that happen <laughs> but they really uh, need roger waters to sell tickets but uh but greg shankin like he promoted the show and yeah. i don't know how successful it was financially but it was fucking awesome got us to the next day you know and post junction opened up all right. Yeah, remember that band? So after that show, Aaron had this really long keyboard that he used, the, the lower keyboard for pianos and basic, like, normal stuff, not the techie weird stuff. But he had this big keyboard with the weighted keys, felt like a piano. So what he did was he would put it in this big square felt case. It was a hard case, but it was covered in felt. And we would put it, we would open the door to the van get into the van and then we would put the felt case like against the door and then slide the door closed. And that's how that keyboard was packed. It was in the van right. with us. It didn't go in the trailer. Right. There was no room in the trailer. It came in the thing with us. But everybody hated it because whenever you stop at a rest stop or something like that, you got to <laughs> climb over this keyboard or take it out. And it weighs like 400 pounds. Aaron doesn't have any devices that don't weigh. I think they put weights into his keyboards to make right. them harder to carry. So... At that particular show, the keyboard was sitting next to the van on the road, on the street of New York City. Like, sitting on the street in New York City, a $1,000 keyboard, right? And we all got in the van and closed the door. Nobody put the keyboard in the van because it wasn't malicious. We just forgot. And we drove all the way to New Jersey on our way back to Philadelphia. And we stopped at, like, 
exit Molly Pitcher or something. <laughs> Molly Pitcher rest stop. Yeah, we stopped at Molly Pitcher. And when we got out to go get Roy Rogers, <laughs> we realized that it was really easy to get out of the van. <laughs> That's awesome. And why is there no keyboard blocking my exit of the van? And we realized we had left it on the street. We had no money and we were like... And Damn no cell it, we, have to, we have to go back because no, you thing. couldn't call like, "Hey, Greg Shanky, can yes. you run down the block and see if it's still there and wait?" Like, <laughs> yes. there's no cell phone. You couldn't no do way. it. You pay phone from Molly Hatchet rest stop <laughs> and like. So we had to turn around and drive all the way back to New York after playing a six-hour concert, and almost home, like halfway home, we had to turn around and drive all the way back to New York, and when we got there, the keyboard was still on the street waiting for us to take it because nobody wanted to carry home. Nobody, like, anybody who walked by who was like, oh, there's a free keyboard, was like, eh, it's too fucking heavy. What do I want that fucking thing for? So just sat there. One of the uh, perks of having really heavy gear. <laughs> nobody will steal it. Nobody will steal it. Yeah. So speaking of heavy gear in New York City, yeah, yeah. I remember another show you guys played in an alternative venue. I think it was 98. Right. And Andy Bernstein, yet again, was he used to have these great backyard barbecues at his place in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And we were there all afternoon. It was like me, Brownstein, Mark Weiss from Post Junction was there. He's a guy you should get on your podcast. He's got a super interesting story. We could talk about that later, but you should talk to him. But anyway, we were at the barbecue, and then you guys had a show that night at Webster Hall. Yes. Webster Hall. Side room. Side not room. even the big room, the little room. Webster Hall, for those of you who are not familiar with New York, is a legendary club club. Not like a rock music club. They do have shows there. But it was really like a like like a dance club. I mean, right now I think it's a bass music club. I think. Well, now I think like either AEG Live, AEG Live Nation owns it. Like one of those companies owns it. Oh no, Bowery Presents or something. They read put like gajillions of dollars and they made it like a state of the art place. But anyway, it was not state of the art in 1998, and you guys were playing a side room. Like this is a rickety staircase. It was like an upstairs side room. And I remember Sammy had to like lug his drums up there, and like that was the most exercise he had gotten in his life. And uh, right. and like yes, uh, I remember that you were like, "There's no fucking way we're bringing the Leslie up there." Like, "There's no fucking way we're bringing the Leslie up there." And you didn't bring the Leslie up there. And I think that was like the first full, like, for lack of a better term, techno show the Biscuits play because Magner just had like his, you know, there was no Leslie. No hippie, like, you know, jam music. It was all, like, four on the floor, like, club music. And it was, like, because you have a really fucking piece of gear, you can't schlep up the stairs. Yeah, it was, and Leslie was, like, a three-man job to get yeah. up the stairs. In so. the staircase, you couldn't physically have three men walking on the stairs. You couldn't do it. Yeah, it was unbelievable. And we all loved that show. And we tried to use that show as a reason to get Aaron to drop the Leslie. Yeah, and there's some kind of keyboardist code that I'm not allowed to know about that requires that all keyboard players drag this spinning speaker around with them. I think it's yeah. I don't know what it is, man. Page has got at least one. Magner's got one. Everybody, they drag this spinning speaker from 1965, which needs like its own repair tech. It needs its own kind of grease. It needs its own trailer. Yes, it needs its own like case. It needs its own wheels. Yeah. And it's basically just entirely based on 
like why an ambulance goes when it drives by you. And for some reason, they, you have a keyboard with every sound in like the you world can't have in it. That sound is not. It's like so it's almost as good. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like really, like that's you know the one thing you need to like. I would, it's unbelievable. I would take the almost as good rather than the six hundred piece of wood. Had that argument every other day for three years. Like, why are we lugging this thing around? And Webster Hall, I think we won that day. Yeah, barely. Me and Sammy won. Barely. Yeah, <laughs> me and Sammy were like, no way. We won that day. We lose a lot of the time, but we love. We won that one. And we got a super techno show out of it. One of my goals, which actually we never did, was to play the main stage at Webster Hall. We never, we never played it because we just went to Roseland and skipped it. But at the time... Playing the Trocadero was a goal. Playing Webster Hall was a goal. And that was a big stepping stone show for us. So I'm sure we ripped that show because it was exciting. It was like, oh my God, we play this. And then next thing you know, we're playing there and it'll be great. It was an awesome show. It was a lot of fun. So real quick, the General John Schwartz, every day, Fish Radio. Sirius XM. Sirius XM, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. every single day of the weekday. So you're Howard Stern on Fish Radio, basically. But not nearly as good. Not <laughs> no, nearly as no good. No one is. As no good one as is. Howard. He is so <laughs> fucking good. Like he is not the gold standard. He is like the. You can't. Yeah, he's like. Uh, it's going to be a very sad day when when he decides to hang him up. He's never gonna. He's never gonna hang it up. He's got enough money to develop some kind of health serum to keep him alive for maybe another fifty, sixty years, and he's going to radio the whole time because he loves the gig. Well, uh, you know. From your mouth to God's ears. Yeah, listen, God. Let's keep God. Power. Keep out of Keep out of It's a weird thing. Like, as an entertainer, I feel a little bit of... Sometimes I make myself work when I'm tired and I don't want to work based on the fact that if you do really cool stuff, you are doing something that people won't have on Earth. Not that it's so great, but... It's just to someone it's good at a moment in time. And if you don't do that, then it just doesn't exist on Earth. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the whole deal with art, really. Yeah. You know, if you don't create it, it won't exist. Yeah, that's crazy, right? Blows my mind all the time. I think about that all the time. I don't even know how to think about that. I don't have the psychological tools to to think about something like that. It was a big part of why I put the Disco Biscuits back together is because there's people who love this thing. And to take it away from them, it just feels like a crime, almost. Even if it's only a couple people. Right. Well, it's more than a couple people. It's enough people that, like, when I went into tech, we still couldn't cancel the Disco Biscuit shows. We still kept the Red Rocks, and we still kept the Philly big shows we were doing. We were doing The, the best, Man. The Best Buy Theater. Yeah. We're Camp still, Bisco. Yeah, we still kept Camp Bisco. We still when, kept a couple things, because it felt like to take that away... It's just like a public service. You just have to do that stuff. I remember once uh, Mark called me because he heard me on Jam On when he was driving somewhere. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, you know, the Disco Biscuits, you know, I'm looking on their tour dates page. And for a band that doesn't play any shows, they sure have a lot of fucking shows on their tour dates page. Because it was like right after you announced like some sort of Bisco Inferno thing in Colorado with like a Boulder Theater attachment to it. And there was like a Red Rocks and there was like a, you know, you had all these whatever you can't Bisco for and it let you there were like 20 dates on the books I'm like for a band that doesn't play shows they sure have a lot of shows on the, on the book <laughs> I know, I know, right? he's, like, he's like great I'm really happy you said that I'm really happy you said that Schwartz because <laughs> it's that illusion is what's keeping us alive right it's weird he's like keep on saying that it's weird the Disco Biscuits should have died should have totally 
But clearly there's, it didn't for a reason. It because, didn't for a reason. Because even though it wasn't, you didn't resurrect it, it wasn't dead. Yeah, exactly. It was there. It was a living, breathing entity, not as, not breathing as quickly or as often as people would want. Well, but, I mean, it's one of those things where like you can work on it all the time and you can do really great work. You can work on it all the time and do really bad work or you can not work on it at all. And I felt like I had worked on it all the time and done really great work. And then I worked on it all the time and everything I did was bad. And then I just threw up my hands and was like, well, it is what it is. I, I don't know what to do about this thing. But then you're faced with the, the dilemma of is those couple of nights a year worth for me or is it, am I doing that for someone else? And I think that was an interesting decision by all the band members because everybody made that decision was like, okay, it's worth it for me to do these shows because there's a lot of people who are really happy about that. And then those people stayed with the band through that whole period. I haven't experienced that in my life too much, so I thought that was a unique thing. One of the things that I thought was really smart, and I don't know if it was a conscious decision that you guys made, is that unlike other bands in our space, Fish, String Cheese Incident, Widespread Panic, when they take a break, they make a big hoopla, we're going on hiatus. They use the H word, we're going on hiatus. Like, it's like a thing. Like is every, that a it, word? Is it's it? like a hiatus hernia. It's like they have a, <laughs> <laughs> like they, it's, they make it a thing. You guys did the exact same thing, but by not calling attention to it, yeah, it enabled the band to still be a living, breathing entity and do whatever it is you were going to do for that period of time. And you didn't make a big deal like jambands.com reports that the Disco Biscuits are going on an indefinite hiatus. Right. I think the weird thing is the Disco Biscuits, we had such a tumultuous career, which you are aware of fully. Like, But the fans might not know. And all of you listening might think you know. You probably don't know. Because we didn't make big promotional moments out of these breakups and these situations and needing hiatuses and whatnot. We just kind of just play shows. And and now set break is over. Yeah, and now I get the right music for a living, which is great. And I really feel like I'm in a new band, which is just amazing. Because everybody has this mindset of extreme positivity which is something that is rare to experience so i think we're in a moment here and i like it well, hopefully this moment continues for quite some time i and, hope so yeah I mean, listen we're all in different places in our lives you know we're definitely older maybe a little bit wiser but we i think we see that we're we're just starting our back nine if you think about it you know well two years ago i definitely had like a some kind of thing where I rented a mansion in Beverly Hills and I threw lobster parties every day. I don't know why I did that. Now we're serious again. We're serious <laughs> and we and we I don't want to be morbid. Like I think of this as a positive, not a morbid thing, but like every day we wake up is a blessing. And yeah. we need to do the best we can do with what we have each one of those days because there may not be a tomorrow. It kind of feels like that a little bit. And and I think, you know, twenty years ago, you know, we didn't have that perspective. And I think it's an obvious and a simple thing to say but when you're in it, I think it's just where we are in life. Like, the celebrity couldn't be over if you did it in 10 years. Now's a good time for it. Now is a great, is the time for it. And I think it happened organically and for the right reasons from what, you know, yeah, in my opinion. Like, I think it's happened organically for sure. And I feel like 10 years ago, what we were lacking was people who do what you do. We didn't have enough 
people with the perseverance and entrepreneurial attitude and the vision for the scene. And it was a lot of like, the scene fractured in an intense way. Now, I don't think it was from lack of good people. I just think when the computers came into the music business that it caused as an instrument, that it caused so much disarray between Napster and being able to do a laptop concert with no band at all. There was just so many different things going on that the whole music business fractured in a major way. And to make the biscuits go in that scene was a hard thing for us to do. We just had trouble because it was just like, what do you do every day? Like For a person like me who can kind of conceive of how to make something work in so many different categories, it was just too many, too much stuff going on. I think one of the best things that a byproduct or a side product of, let's just call it, the biscuits slow down yes. over the last decade is a lot of people don't know with touring bands that you need to be very conscious of the markets that you play, not to overplay your markets. And by not playing, you did a great job of not overplaying your market. Yeah. So now, like with Chicago, the West Coast, like people are starving because legitimately they have not had this in their lives unless they flew to Colorado, which a lot of them did, or they flew to, you know, the holiday runs. Yeah. So, like I said, a lot of bands, like, have to be very strategic, and, like, they go back to St. Louis one too many times, and, like, you know, 50 people show up instead of 500 people or 5,000 people. They blew out their market. Like, they killed their market. What is that experience? I think I just want to start this by telling the crowd, you are also a band manager. You manage a band called Southern Avenue, and they are an extremely talented musical outfit. The whole reason you're here is because they're nominated for a Grammy, correct? Yeah, they're nominated for a Grammy. And, you know, by the time this airs, hopefully they'll have won the Grammy. But, I hope so. But Gary Clark Jr. is going to fucking win, and it's cool because he's awesome. And uh, we've got a long time ahead of us to do our thing. We're just happy that a young band that's barely been a band for three years yeah. is on their second album, was nominated for a Grammy, totally unexpectedly. Yeah, when you texted me and were like, hey, I'm going to come stay at your place for a couple of days. I'm going to the Grammys with my band. I guess like it was a little bit out of the blue because I haven't heard from you in a minute, but it wasn't that surprising that you're managing a band and you're going to do the Grammys and that kind of stuff. It made a lot of sense. So what are you going to wear to the Grammys? Um, I'm going to wear a tunic. <laughs> I'm going to wear an all green tuxedo. I'm gonna, you ever see, remember uh, what the, the tuxedo that Tom Hanks wore in big, like powder blue ruffles? I'm going for, yeah. that. I'm going for that look. Are you going to do that? Yeah, yeah, totally, man. Patent leather white shoes. Or you just gonna do like classic manager, like bolo tie and a jacket, but t-shirt, cigarette. I'm gonna get a bolo tie tomorrow. We'll go to the Grove. Yeah, they don't sell them in LA anymore. Bolo Amazon ties. same day yeah, delivery. You gotta drive to Vegas to get a bolo tie right now. Can I be? I'll be back in time. So you're going to the Grammys on Sunday. I'm going to the Grammys on Sunday. So tell us what your day is on Sunday. My day on Sunday is going to be pretty interesting um, because Southern Avenue is on tour. Mm-hmm. As you know, touring musician, like we weren't going to cancel a show. We have a sold out show in Atlanta on Saturday night with North Mississippi All-Stars. They loved playing that venue. We love the promoter there. He's been a big supporter for years. We weren't going to cancel a show because of the fucking Grammys. Yeah. Grammys are cool, but like we're a live fucking band and like who gives a fuck ultimately, you know, it's all about playing shows and the fans and that. Anyway, they weren't going to cancel it. So they're flying in the morning of, they're taking like the first flight from Atlanta to Insane, LA. Insane, They're dude. taking a 7 a.m. flight with a time difference. They get in, knock on wood at 9.34 a.m. Unbelievable. Have an Uber waiting for them. So rock and roll. We have, you know, hotel by the airport. I've confirmed that at least one of their four rooms will be ready so the girls can get 
dressed and changed. Right. Have another Uber XL waiting for them. Zipping over to my hotel, which is right by the Grammys. I have like the limo pass so they could get dropped off at the red carpet. We have a publicist from our label like waiting for them there to escort them down the red carpet. Jamie's never had a red carpet. No. As you know, I helped Peach Appear produce the Jammies for seven or eight years. I fucking love the Jammies. I love the Jammies. I was a big fan. The Jammies, like when I think back on... Can we just rename it and continue to do it? Well, the funny thing was, I can't go into the real reason. Oh, fuck it. I'll tell the story. Tell me the story. Um, Long story short, allegedly, Mm -hmm. another award show with a similarly named name didn't want there to be a Jammies anymore because it was getting too big. And made an offer, hypothetically, that the powers that be couldn't refuse. Mm -hmm. And that's why the jammies may or may not have gone away. In truth, the jammies had kind of run its course. We had done everything we had wanted to do with it. We had fish reunite at the jammies, effectively. We had the Disco Biscuits with Travis Tritt. We had... I I loved Travis Tritt. He was hilarious. That was amazing. His drummer was sick. That was like in between Sammy and right. Alan. And his drummer like fucking crushed the yeah, house he dog. he was great. He was crushed really it. great. Yeah, we put him on house dog. How unforgiving of us. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> Bunch of At dicks. At the theater hey, of we got this song. It's in every meter. Just enjoy yourself. And he killed it. He killed it. He killed the Nashville guy. He was cool about it the whole time, too. He was, like, into it. I remember. For him, it was fun. Yeah. And they interviewed Travis. We did, like, the DVD and the MSG TV series. And, yeah. man, those guys are crazy. Yeah. Yeah. He was like super into it. But yeah, I mean, we had Perry Farrell mm-hmm. with string cheese backing him. Like, That's right. One of my favorite things was Sinead O'Connor and Burning Spear mm-hmm. doing Burning Spear tunes with MMW backing them with the Antibalas horns. Like, in, like, what else could we do with this show? You just you know? sold me on the next episode. Like, I'm just remembering right now how cool it was to have all those synergies. Yeah. And how showbiz it was. We put a band together that was Phil Lesh, Buddy Guy, mm-hmm. Quest Love on drums, and John Mayer. Amazing. Like, doing like Hoochie Coochie Man. Like Mo with the Blue Oyster Cult. Like who thinks of this fucking shit? Pete Shapiro thinks, Pete of this, thinks of this fucking shit. All day, apparently. And effectively, if you want to think about it, Lockin is the jammies as a festival. Maybe. Look at I the, mean, I dude, can go at, there with you, but I don't know. All right, look at the headliners last year. You have Trey Anastasio Band with mm-hmm. Derek Trucks. Okay. You have Tedeschi Trucks Band with Trey Anastasio. Like you have, you know, in a way, he kind of morphed the jammies into a festival. You got me thinking about the jammies that were in New York. And I'm thinking about, I was backstage. It was showbiz for me. I mean, I shook hands with Trey. I've only done that like twice in my whole life. I hung out hard with Sinead O'Connor. We hung tough for a minute. Uh, Travis Tritt was there. Were you at the Ryan Adams? Ryan Adams and I were sound checking at the same time on the same stage. Yeah, he was whacked. He was, but I thought he was being funny. I don't think I understood what his deal was at that point. I just thought he was being funny, but everybody else was acting weird. But to me, he was just a guitar player standing on the same stage as me. Like It was just like, hey, what, what pedals are you using? What guitar are you using? Like, you know, like I didn't know him that well. But it was a lot of that kind of moment. I don't get that moment at Lockin. I kind of get that at Lockin, actually, because I met the lady from Heart, Nancy Wilson. It kind of happened. I had a moment at one of the jammies where um, we had Tea Leaf Green Mm -hmm. and 
this was with Reed Mathis, who's like a monster fucking player. The like, craziest. The cra- and the nicest dude ever. Like, the most fluent. He was in Tea Leaf Green. That was his era of the band. With Glenn Tilbrook of Squeeze. And wow. They were, and they were doing like pulling muscles from the shell and mm-hmm. black coffee in bed. And my first rock concert that I ever bought a ticket to was the Squeeze Babylon and On Tour at Madison Square Garden, November of 1987. I was a freshman in high school. Wow. Waited online to buy tickets. That like, was your first concert. First concert. Squeeze. Squeeze. Madison yeah. Square. Sold out Madison Square Garden. Yeah. I never saw Squeeze. So um, Why don't they tour? They do. They're here and there. Really? Southern Avenue's been on two festivals with Squeeze. Really? And uh, When's the collaboration coming? So I was standing... Side stage, and you know, I was like, you know, I had my walkie-talkie on, and like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> looking dapper because it's the jammies. Yeah, yeah. And who's next to me? Glenn Tilbrook, and like, mm-hmm. I had a fucking moment, and I told him, I said, you know, this is like kind of all your fault. He's like, pardon, you know. Mm-hmm. And I told him, first concert, Babylon and Entour, November '87, Madison Square, the upstairs seventh floor, like big room, and it kind of changed my life. And like, you know, this is what I do now, and it's probably a direct correlation to the positive experience that they had to your music played live in this very building 30 years 20 years whatever it was, it was like 2007 we did maybe and this was 1987 so mm-hmm. carry the one whatever so uh <laughs> and uh he either didn't hear me and was nodding politely or like didn't give a fuck one yeah. or the other but like i'm glad i had the moment whether he had the same moment right irrelevant definitely didn't have the same moment but no i had the moment you had your moment yes. and it was cool i mean look we're talking about moments all night tonight like this is what rock and roll is it's these amazing moments that you carry through your life as tent poles of what you were doing where you were at mentally where you were at philosophically and which band was able to capture that energy in a dance beat, in a vibe, in a lyrical content. I really liked when Max Dawson was on Touchdowns All Day with <laughs> John the Barber. Well, like, and, uh, Just John Barber. John Barber, sorry. I dropped the the. You can edit that out. <laughs> edit it I out. didn't change my whole name. I'm not going with Vic, Spiro. edit it out. Vic, get on the... <laughs> Where's Mike? Uh, anyway... <laughs> And I like how Max was talking. One of the things that he said that really like resonated with me is mm-hmm. how he kind of said he kind of fell out of live music and stopped going to shows yeah. because nothing could really compare to these moments that he had. Well, yeah, he got his face blown off with like full on shimmies and pancake houses. I can't imagine what that was like either. I've <laughs> never seen anything like that in my life. So I don't know what he went through. You know, I had similar different yet similar well you were there responses. too like, you, i remember for me you know we talked about that van ride back yeah. to upper darby mm-hmm. we just hung out for like three days i think at one point sam was like is he ever leaving but it happened all the time at that house people would come to that house and live there some people stayed for over a month so anyway the next day after we had that godfather marathon and we finally you know woke up the next day went to wawa or something Seven <laughs> Eleven. we talked about the creation of art like mm-hmm. plan b from the beginning Mark had like lyrics scribbled in a notebook mm-hmm. and you guys would run into that sun porch like where you had all your gear That's set it. up. Yeah, yeah. And like you'd work on one thing and like mm-hmm. uh, then we'd like, you know, pull bongs and then like, you know, go to the Wawa and come <clears> back and Mark would write something else and like he'd bring mm-hmm. it to you and you'd be like, oh, okay. For sure. And by the end of like the that day, it was a fully fleshed out formed plan B. yeah. And, yeah. I'm, and I said to Lesser, I go, you could drive me to the train now. Still one of my favorite songs. So like for me, that was one of those tentpole experiences. It's like watching 
Picasso create, you know, it's like watching Michelangelo paint the Sistine Chapel for me. Let's just remove the artist of renown out of it. I feel like Plan B is an incredibly artistic statement musically. And my job for Plan B was very small. I mean, Mark did all the work. And yet, still to this day, when we play Plan B, I say to myself, this holds up. So you were basically at the nexus of that. And that's exciting. It was exciting. No what it is. And, yeah. and, I, and I remember, like, the, there was, like, something, there were the one part, like, mag, was, was trying to figure out the Magner key part. Yeah. And, and, like, that was the one thing that, like, okay, let's take a break. Order pizza. It's yeah. hard to decide when to take a break when you're in a band. Because uh, the breaks are very important. A lot of subconscious thinking gets done. And for better or the worse, it was like working from home. Like you had like the full studio, all the gear like there. Neighbors must have loved you. I had a device which takes a tape, which has four channels on it, left and right, and then left and right going the other direction, right? Because you flip the tape and you press play. I had a device which cuts a tape into eight channels and plays them all in the same direction so I could record the band and make demos on it. There's some space age thing that I bought. So, um, So, yeah, so for me, that was that sort of experience. Yeah. And very few people are fortunate as a fan to have those experiences i mean how many people did you know michelangelo let in the room while he was you know making whatever whatever what you know what you created is like the same level because no one was making music that sounded like that yeah lyrically musically psychedelically emotionally like when people who felt it like on a visceral level i think that's one of the reasons why disco biscuit fans are so passionate is because there was nothing else like that before or since. Yeah. And to witness not just a song be created, but almost like a new genre of music, a new art form, I feel like honored and blessed to have had that experience. Wow. I love that. I think it would be really interesting to have Mark here right now because... I'm right here, man. What do you want? What do you want? <laughs> what do you want today? I was whatever. I was just fighting a song. Yeah. I was just putting a song together. What do you want to Lesser. do? Lesser. Roll of blood. <laughs> roll of blood. Whatever. The song's done. Let's roll of blood. Uh, because whenever I think of songs that I wrote, I have a very clear moment of when we were putting them in with the band. And it's funny that you bring up a song that Mark wrote, and I don't have that clear picture anymore. So it's weird how, like, when it's yours, you have, like, an attachment to the moment and you remember it. And when it's not yours, you have an attachment to maybe the song itself because Plan B is one of my favorites. That guitar melody is one of my favorites. But I don't remember necessarily how we wrote it, how we put it in, the kind of detail, when it's not my job to put it in. That being said, for me, watching from the sidelines, even though it's a Mark song, yeah. It definitely felt like a team. It was a team effort. Well, yeah, we were very teamy in those days. It was days. definitely like he may have had the spark or the impetus. Like he had the note, but like it definitely felt like you were helping Magner figure out the key part. And yeah. Mark was working with Sammy on like, you know, on the like it was definitely maybe a Mark song, but it's definitely it was a full team effort. I mean, that's why I want to do everything on YouTube. You know, that's why I like putting everything on YouTube, because it is a team effort. And the inspirations by everybody are worth capturing. And you never know when they're going to happen. Okay, so when you were coming here to the Oasis Pond studio. To the uh, house that reminds me of that scene from Boogie Nights. Yes, my my one floor 
meth den that I live in in the valley. I'm waiting for Roller Girl to show up any minute. <laughs> roller Girl's on her way over. I love Roller Girl. Uh, you did, you did. Um, I met Roller Girl. She was very famous when I met her. Speaking of famous people in the yeah. world of the Disco Biscuits, you mentioned Roseland before. Yeah. One of the things we did, you know, I've been to Upper Darby, the house in Upper Darby, multiple times. That was a great house. That was a great It's funny because we had no money when we lived in that house and we had nothing else to do. I didn't even have a car, and all the songs I wrote in that era of my life are the songs that everybody wants us to play. It's crazy how. You would think it would be the worst time of life. It was the best of times. But it was the it worst was the of times. It was the worst of times. But we were broke back then. It was funny. I remember... Um, the carpets were like green and black. <laughs> did they give you this carpet? Like, where <laughs> did you get this fucking carpet? In a testament to how great of a guy Pete Shapiro is, yeah. Pete Shapiro would crash at the house. <laughs> like, And I remember like Pete's like... Yeah, how hardcore do you get? Like Pete once said to me, he goes, you've been to the house in Upper Darby? He's like, he's like, what the fuck, dude? Can they get a cleaning lady? <laughs> like, it's disgusting. It was so disgusting. I'm like, but you stay there. It's like, yeah, well, you know, I'll stay there. You know, it's a free place, you yeah. know? <laughs> there was like a green carpet and then that butted up to like the hallway before the stairs and there was a cut and then there was a crappier blue carpet right next to it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Terrible. So I forgot what I was about to say about the house. It'll come back to me. It just goes to show you if you have a really good rock band, chicks will get with you regardless of your carpeting choices (laughs) and like balled up tissues everywhere. (laughs) And and Rick Rude would just be there and like yeah, like barking and stuff like that. But what I wanted to talk to you about was I wanted you to tell the story to the podcast listeners of I have this memory. This specific memory of paying of me four hundred dollars backstage after in the every wetland show. I think it was one show. No, it's at least twice. It was one time I paid you four hundred, the next time I paid you seven hundred. I never knew what you did. You always had this leather jacket on. I never had a leather and jacket. You were like I cool never had a New leather York, jacket. You were like this cool I definitely, New York promoter guy. Listen, I never knew what you did, but the show is always sold out. So it was like, I got to pay this guy. I don't know what he does. But I think it wasn't like a set fee. What we agreed to was something like 4%. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some and, 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 we, and we came up with the idea of 4%. <laughs> like, well, the agent makes 10%. <laughs> and I'm like, but all they're doing is call. Like, I could call Chris on. Like, I can get you the same fucking gig. You can call Chris on. What the, you know, you're like, okay. You're like, what about 4% and a t-shirt? <laughs> and I was like, Rock deal. And roll negotiation. Deal. And I remember once after you gave me four hundred dollars, you walked out. I go, "Where's my fucking t-shirt?" <laughs> You're like, "We packed up the merch." You're like, "I'll give you two next time." I'm like, "All right." <laughs> so, and those were the shows. The shows that you promoted were the shows where the Disco Biscuits started to feel like a successful band because we weren't in Philly. We were in New York. We were playing an iconic room in the Wetlands. And when you started promoting the shows, we started to sell them out. So, what were you doing? To take a band like the Biscuits that literally no one liked and figured out how to put a thousand people into a club to that watch the 600 band. people. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's a few things. What was the sauce? And I wish I had that sauce today with Southern Avenue. Like, I'm still trying to hack that and game that, and hopefully we will soon. Yeah. I think a king, you have to be passionate. You can't bullshit passion, you know? So, like, yeah, you have yeah. to really passionate about it and really believe in something. If you don't, people don't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. That's the base element. You have to love it. Okay. 
and you have to believe in it with every ounce of and your And at being. the time, that was just promoting... I was helping my friends. Like, I love the fucking band. Like, I believed the band was the best fucking band. It wasn't to be a promoter. It was to be... Well, was I was Because helping, the band was worthy to listen to. I was trying to figure out, like, what I wanted to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I went to college, and I graduated from university, and I still had no fucking idea what I wanted to do with my life. And I had a girlfriend after college who... We dated for like a year and she was like an Upper East Side chick and she's a lovely woman. She's married and has kids now and whatever, you know, all love all the time. But (laughs) I think she basically broke up with me because I didn't have a plan of what I wanted to do with my life. And like all I loved to do was like. She wanted you to become a doctor. Or a lawyer or or something, you know, that like, you know. Probably listen to her mom too much. Exactly. But her mom sat me down one day. Okay. We're sitting in her apartment. Ironic. And she's like, here's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. And she was really kind about it. She's like, let's make a chart, kind of a vision board. In column A, put everything that you like to do. Okay. In column B, put everything that you're good at doing. Uh-huh. And then column C, why don't we come up with like jobs that you match from column A to column B? So and was your... You're, and like was, column was A, she trying to have I think sex she was trying, with you? No, 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 no. She was what trying was to help me. Like, I think she was trying to help me figure out, like, because I had no idea what she I wanted. She really, really cared about where you were going. So she liked you a lot. She liked me, or she just didn't want her daughter to date some fucking loser who had no vision or plan of what the alley was doing. But you had, like, a cool jacket. I didn't have a cool jacket. <laughs> um, I had a hoodie. Thank you. I remember, like, a cool jacket. You're going to find it. I know which jacket you're talking about. <laughs> I had a vintage coat from Sears that I bought at a secondhand store in Worcester after Fish 97 mm-hmm. that everyone envied this jacket. It was a dope jacket. It was a dope jacket that I paid $14 for, mm. and I wore the fuck out of that for years. Thrifty. That was the dope jacket. Yeah, yeah. You don't wear that it. jacket anymore. I unfortunately wore that jacket. It was already like 40 years old when I bought it, you know? But anyway, column A, things I like to do. And I couldn't write. I like to so smoke So what was in column A? I like to the, smoke pot. I did you put that in no, there? No, but like that was definitely what I was thinking, you know? Right, right, right. You know, I love live music. Mm-hmm. I love talking to people. Like, what are things you're good at? I'm mm-hmm. good at talking to people. I'm good at, you know, whatever. So like, and I, we still, at the end of that, actually, we still didn't figure out what it was I would do. Mm-hmm. Flash forward around that time, I was living on the Upper East Side. I was mm-hmm. living on 86th Street between Park and Lex across from the HMV music store where I would always go and rescue hippie jam bands from the dollar bargain bin because I felt bad. I didn't want them people to think badly of jam bands in the bargain bin. So, um, wow. How go, altruistic of you. I would see like, oh yeah, I'll buy a panic disc for $2. Like no one should see why should panics in the shitty CD bargain bin. Like, right. Things like that. Spin doctors should not be in the bargain bin. Like these horde bins, you know. Right, so right. anyway, because they weren't selling in the regular bins because they're hippie jam bins and no one fucking cares about. Not an 86 in Park. Not an 86 sure. in Park, for sure. So um, that's like Pinkberry territory right now. Now it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I um, was at my local watering hole, a place that you'd played a couple times. This is before I really knew you, I think, but it was uh, like 95, 96, Crossroads. Crossroads. On 77th Street between 1st and 2nd. It was like mm. kind of like a classic rock hippie bar that had live music four or five nights a week. I think we played there with Greg Schenken. You might have played there with Greg Schenken. Maybe. And then I hooked you up with a gig there after Post Fish Nassau in 98, the island tour. Oh, yeah, yeah, But it was like an L-shaped room that had a pool table at like the corner. Anyway, it was a cool little bar in my neighborhood. Right. And I was sitting there one day having a beer and, uh, you know, I was friends with the bartenders. And I see this dude that I know who's the lead singer of this band that was called Innocence. Oh, yeah, I remember those guys. 
they were also at that festival in Wilmer's Park. I drove from New York with them to the festival, and I drove home with you. Right. So telling. I see the gripping and telling. <laughs> I see the lead singer of this band like putting up a poster, mm-hmm. and I'm like, "Hey, man, remember John? Oh, how you doing? What's going on? You want a beer? Yeah, let's have a beer." I'm like, "So what are you doing? I'm putting up posters for my show." I'm like, "But you're like a rock star, like you know." Yeah, I mean, he's we've like, all done it. He's like. Someone's got to fucking do it, man. I'm like, Someone's well, I'm like, like a light bulb. I'm like, I could put a poster. So I'm like, okay. I'm like, I could even take that poster, go to Kinko's and make it a f- small flyer and give them out to people. It's like, well, dude, if you do that, I'll fucking put you on the guest list for every show. And I was like, ding, 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 ding. And it was like, that was my calling. It was like, because it wasn't obvious that that was how to do it back then. It really wasn't because Kinko's didn't exist four years earlier. So, and there's a Kinko's. Two blocks away. And yeah. I, was like, I was like, give me the posters. Interesting. And I literally went straight to Kinko's and I figured out how to make a flight. Like, Jose, who was the manager, we figured how do we shrink it down? Yeah. And I'm like, you can't charge me for that because it didn't work. Like, you know, we like, right. I totally right. get them. Anyway, so like, uh, <laughs> and then we, you know, I learned to the cutting machine and I learned yeah. how to scan on their computers that I had to pay like a dollar for five minutes to use, like these old mm-hmm. shitty Macs that would freeze up. I'm not paying for that. It froze. Like, you know? Right. <laughs> but like, and they, what were you doing? Making the flyer I made on the, fly- the computer? On the spot. Because like, you didn't have a personal computer. I did. But I didn't have a scanner and like I didn't right. have a quark, I think it was like the program you use at the time. <laughs> so I basically treated it like a job. And like I, my whole day wasn't to get paid. It was like, how do I get into as many shows in New York as possible for free? I love that. Wow. That was like that was my thing. I was 24 years old and like, you know, I I saw that as a way. Like, how do I get to go to the wetlands every night and not have to pay? Right. Um and so before I did this for the disco business. Interesting motivator because I feel like that motivator just, I want to do this for free, you know, whatever this happens to be, is the motivator of many of the good entrepreneurs of the world, no matter where it's at. So, you know, I did it for, in a sense, with the show, and they're like, oh, you know, listen, man, they called me up, and they're like, listen, man, like, we've got our first headlining show at the Wetlands in, like, three weeks. And they were kind of freaking out because they told us, you know, if you don't bring at least 200 people, you never play the Wetlands again. Give yeah, them that yeah, speech. That speech. And so they were like freaking out. So I'm like, I'm on it, you know. And basically what I also learned in through gaming this process and my mm-hmm. little hack was right. that if I went to the Wetlands with a stack of flyers for another show at the Wetlands. Yeah. They would let me in for free. Ah. Because I was effectively helping them get people to come to their sh- club on another night who would then drink and stuff. Makes total sense. I went every fucking night of the week. Every night. I'd be, and I would go up every fucking chick. I'm like, you have to go see my band play. This mm-hmm. is the band. I love this fucking man. They're awesome. I promise you it's going to be the best night of your life. And it was a great way for me to meet chicks. I met so many fucking girls this way. And I go to every cool dude at the bar and, you know, like, you want to smoke a bowl? Yeah, I'll smoke a bowl, you know. <laughs> you want to go to this band, you know. And uh, It's illegal, but it won't yeah. be in 20 years. <laughs> I did this, like, literally every night of the week that there was something remotely connected to jam bands or the Grateful Dead. I would go to the wetlands. But like, I didn't want to fucking talk to people. I don't know at the bar. I don't want to be that guy, but fuck it. I'm that guy. Yeah. And like, I would just talk to people. And I made so many friends that way. Like I met like... It's a great icebreaker. I was totally like a young guy. I just moved to the city. I grew up in New York, but I lived in the burp. Had a couple of friends in the jam, but not really. My girlfriend obviously wasn't my circle. <laughs> you know, my girlfriend and her mother on the Upper East Side. That's how I met all my friends in New York, really, mm-hmm. was through giving out flyers at the wetlands. So the night of the big show comes... And they didn't do 200 people. They did 672 people. Yeah. Like line out the door. They did like over 600 people. Like it was like line down the block, like insane. 
And like Yeah, and that's a different from the band perspective. Doing 200 people is good, but in Wetlands it's just kind of a little group. 600 people is this flood that goes into the bar. It was not changes but. your perspective on your whole life because your life is making art and entertaining people. And you are like, oh my god, I'm in the middle of this suddenly. So, the wetlands. Chris on was there. Mm-hmm. That was really the night I met Pete Shapiro. Oh wow, was he at Wetlands? He way was. Back he was. Then? He was at Wetlands then. He huh. just bought it, and like they were not expecting like a madhouse dude. And they're like, how did this happen? Yeah. And like the door guys, like the guy Craig Ajima, who was like the door guy, you know, with with dreads and whatever. He's like, you know, this dude would come every night. Like give out fucking flyers, man. Like you know. Where is find this dude? You know, and they basically he found me. He's like, uh, you got to come with me downstairs to the office. And I was like, fuck, they're gonna like you know like take me like in Las Vegas casinos and like yeah. beat me with something. What, what I do wrong, you know? They're gonna murder you. And they were all really tall. Everyone who worked at the Wetlands was really tall. And I was really, really young. Imposing. And I was really young. And it's yeah. New York City, and it's intimidating. Yeah, even though sure. you know, and like they bring like, me to the office. And, then, and I'm sure and of you course remember. They can't tell you because they're too cool for fucking school. I'm I'm sure you remember the Wetlands office, but it was the yes. smallest, shittiest, narrowest office ever with, with like no windows everywhere. It was horrible. But yeah, like yeah. So they pulled me to this office, and there's no. And that air. one guy was there every single time. Yeah, Chris or whatever was Zon- Charles. Charlie. Charlie was there every single time. So, Zon and Pichibiro, they're like, like, how did you do this? Like, how? and I they told them, and they're like, well. We want you to do this for us. Yeah. Wow. And they basically right there on the spot made me their like director of promotions. Wow. And they're like, we can't pay you, but <laughs> of course, not. but we'll encourage every band that's not from New York who's coming to hire you. And I think they came up with the four percent thing, right? And then we recommend that for you to get X many people, you should call. You know, what's the right. name of your company? And I made up some name on the spot, literally, like yes. Groove City Productions. And they were like, we can't pay you, but like, don't worry. You get an unlimited guest list for the club whenever you want to hang out. People That's hang out. juicy. And like, you know, your money's no good at the bar. When you're 23, 24 year old kid at the Wetlands. Yeah. And like, dude, I got so many people. Into, like, all my friends would go to the Wetlands. Like, it was like, it was the shit, dude. It was the greatest fucking thing, the greatest night of my life. You that know? sounds pretty awesome. There's, there's like, speaking of tentpole moments, that was a tentpole moment I in my career. I feel like if someone says to you, your money's no good somewhere. That's like the ultimate kudos for a person to receive. We, to this day, Pete and I talk. Yeah. Ever since that day, Pete and I have been tight. Yeah. And Zon too. There's like a love there. Like I talked to him for like, you know, 10 years at a time. But if I see him, he's like, you know, you're one of the like the three people from the wetlands I let into my house. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you've seen where I live. I'm like, yeah, no, it's scary. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, like, uh, so yeah. So then at some point, Brownstein kind of figured out that's, you know, sort of what I did. He's like, are you doing this for us? Like, yeah. uh, like he's like, you know, he's very good at recognizing talent, you know, right. not that I'm whatever. He's like, you're doing this for us. I'm like, I'd love to do this for you. And like, you know, and well, uh, we needed it a lot. We needed it a big time. And I, I think it was the deciding factor of our wetlands experience. How were we in Philadelphia going to go from 180 people, 220 people a night to 700 to, people, to like, 700? How are we going to make that jump? That jump is essential to the success of the band. I had this conversation with someone today about Southern Avenue, actually, is that like I'm at a point in my life where unless I'm like super into something or passionate about it, I just won't do it. Like life's too short to waste my time on bullshit. That's right. And I guess it's not a new thing because like the Biscuits were my favorite band and I was passionate about it. And 
I truly honestly believed in my heart of hearts that if you didn't get it, that there was something wrong with you. <laughs> and I was offended. That's crazy. And, and I really took it upon myself to like basically educate people that you need to see this band. If you like music and you're not into this band, you need to have your head examined. Yeah. And that was basically my approach. I kind of like, you know. And that's still true today. Um, but I also, but the, other, <laughs> but the other thing is you asked me like, what did I do? And like, yeah. and you know, it was, I call it offline social networking. That's what it was. There wasn't you Facebook. informed humans face to face. Face to face. That was the Facebook. It was face to face. I gave them a piece of paper well, with you. You're a human. Let me tell you about this. Yeah. And let's have a connection. Yeah. And like, let's exchange information and energy and learn. And that's hard to do. I mean, I would find that job very difficult just because from talking to people to people to people, either you get carried away with one person that you absolutely are enamored with or you can't jive with certain people. There's like these extremes that you have to battle through and like make a connection with people no matter who they are. It takes a certain amount of social skill, social game. I treated it very seriously. I treated it like, you know, I was working on the Manhattan Project. Like I treated it like, (laughs) like it was like it was the most serious job in the world. Yeah, apparently. And I didn't just do it at the wetlands. I would then Mm -hmm. like, okay, let me find some college kids to like mm-hmm. stand outside of all of Howie Schnee's shows at the Lion's Den That's and right. do it. And, and we played those shows. So like, yeah, yeah. let's go, okay, MMW and Morphine are playing the Hammerstein Ballroom. How do I get two kids to hit everyone with flyers on the way in and everyone on the way out? And that $400, by the way, wasn't just in my pocket. Like I was paying, like I had a kid from Baruch College. I had two kids from Columbia. Pretty quickly, like I built, I had like 14, 15 college kids that I would basically pay like, 10 bucks and guest list on my guest list of the show. Like, you know, every Interesting. Night. So like they got to go to shows for free. So I tried to spread, you know, that whole thing. So you were like, this works for me. I'm like, you want to go? I can show? do this with other people at every club in the city. And sometimes I would go around and I would spot check. Because that is the hard thing about that business is, is you, people promise you that they're going to do something, but do they actually do it? And do they do it with the face-to-face veracity that it no, takes? No, no one. And to this day, like, I think that no one was as good at it in my prime as I was because I was genuine and organic. And I don't I, dispute that statement. I really don't. I don't. The Biscuits were a good band. We had a lot of fans. We toured around the country. But when we started working with you, our popularity exploded. I mean, we were four times bigger. That's so rare. Like right now, if the Disco Biscuits were to get four times bigger... You'd be selling selling out out arenas all over the country. Yeah. But that's what happened. But pretty quickly, it outgrew me. Like, like I would say there was like a six to eight month window. (laughs) There was a six to eight month. (laughs) I'd say the last shows that were super effective, you did two shows like in an April, like April 30th, May 1st. I forgot the year. Mm -hmm. We had Sector 9 open up one night. Mm -hmm. It was their first time ever in New York. Mm-hmm. At a biscuit show. At a biscuit show at oh, the no Wetlands. Way. Those guys opened at the. No way. First time ever in New York City. Interesting. And I remember they drove up from Athens, Georgia, yeah, in, yeah. Their, in their van. They all came out, all with like dreadlocks, super heady. 15 years old. And they were so nice <laughs> and so appreciative. And that's so not the band that I saw like recently. I'm sure, they're very nice guys, but they were like so like kind and like they were They so, are extremely nice people. They were so happy. 
to be playing at the wetlands and yeah. they were the nicest dudes ever they were appreciative just like i was appreciative for the opportunity mm -hmm. that you guys trusted me to like represent your band in a way befitting of the disco biscuits it was an honor and a privilege yeah it's been an honor and privilege to work with you for many years and your path through the music business is an inspiration every step of the way you're changing the game just by doing what you do just by bringing your passion and your inspiration to the game jam on is the only radio station that ever played anything that i ever did it's not that I was playing on a lot of radio and Jamon just gave us an extra play. It's literally Jamon's the only station, the station you created, it's the only station I ever played anything I ever did. I mean, pretty quickly you went from Wetlands to Irving to Roseland. It was beyond me at that point. Well, they wouldn't let you in that racket because <laughs> it's like, okay, now this is the racket. But also along the same lines, like, mm -hmm. you know, from that I did other stuff and, you know, I worked for that Phoenix Records and, you know, right, and, then, Phoenix Records. and then I worked for Relics and I always tried to use whatever platform I had to help the Disco Biscuits. I remember when I started at Relics, this is before the relaunch. We had one issue of like the old Relics that we had to put out before the new Relics. Mm -hmm. And I made sure that the last page, we had an interview. It was an interview with Brownstein. Because mm -hmm. I wanted the Disco Biscuits, and we had to have the name the Disco Biscuits on the cover. Mm. Like, And I always tried, you know, whether it was Relics and getting you guys on the cover, like that I fought for for years, you know, to make that happen. At Sirius, the first thing I did was rip Disco Biscuits CDs. Mm -hmm. Like, I think we had, you know, we're the only place in the world that had, like, encephalous crime, <laughs> like, like streaming heavy rotation. Oh. Like, you could have heard Mr. Don 14 times a day. Because <laughs> we, we didn't have anything else. The basis else. was good on basis, that album. So, uh... You know, he picked me Twilight and Gil Zappa called and yelled at me. Um, Gail was very nice. She just asked us to stop, you know, releasing Frank's music without his permission. It was, but she was totally nice about it, which, you know, was very sweet of her because we were broke at the time and we, we didn't yeah. even think about it. So I always tried to use whatever platform I had to do the same thing I'd always done, which yeah. was promote the Disco Biscuits to a wider audience. Yeah. I appreciate it. I mean, look, we, we built a whole career on that kind and of... People, and people... But it was just me. There were people like me who felt it also. Like, people yeah. who got it. Like, you know, the Meat Camp guys. We wouldn't have Camp Pisco without those guys. You know, so, like, there there were a lot of people who felt what I felt and did what they could using their talents to help their friends, who are the Disco Biscuits. Yeah, it's crazy that there's a new generation of Disco Biscuit fans, and when they hear this podcast, they're going to visualize... What we were doing in New York City to go from nothing to something. And that visualization, in essence, is why I was excited for you to come on the podcast. Because I love telling these kind of stories. But this is your story. The details of the story are what you've said tonight. Like the copying with the printer, with the huge cutting arm, whatever the that thing was. The cutting thing was, was crazy. Dude. I'm surprised I'm not like down a fingertip. Like seriously, <laughs> you don't know how... That was the real world. <laughs> I would be outside, like, with my bat hit and then go inside. Because how else can you, like, be a Kinko's? Like, I couldn't be there not after a bat hit, you know, on the yeah. streets of New York City. And, you know, Giuliani, New York, hope I wouldn't get, like, you know, taken down by the man. Yeah, right. Stop You know, in, in the 90s, you know. I've used that copy machine under the influence, the, the cutting machine. Yeah. But, then, but then they moved to the new kind of cutting machines. It had, like, a plastic guard and you just put the paper in and you, like, like he's kind of like slid this right. thing back and forth. Right. You didn't have that big fucking like guillotine. <laughs> used to like, be a guillotine. <laughs> they were like, okay, we've lost enough fingers. Let's redesign. Let's redesign. This thing. Like enough's enough. <laughs> that was the last finger we're ever gonna cut off at a Kinko's. 
Let's just too get, many lawsuits. <laughs> too many dumb people making flyers and shit. I mean, look, we had a run there where we were making this music in the New York scene that was really resonating with people. And part of resonating with people is pulling them face to face and saying, listen to this. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. I don't know how to do that now either. How are you going to do that with Southern Avenue? It's a very good question. Like at this point in time, you know, if any listeners out there have any suggestions, like I need a young generation of yeah. people that are passionate to give me ideas. I mean, we use obviously all the social platforms. I'm pretty adept at the ad manager and the business manager on the Facebook. We do stuff on Instagram. Like we use stories and you know, is there a correlation between that and selling tickets? Yeah, but I don't think it's not the same as like physically talking to somebody. You know what? I don't think in this day and age, people don't want to be bothered by some dude giving them a flyer. Like, you know, now it's like, there's the whole eco thing. Mm -hmm. You're killing trees, man. Yeah, you know, for like, sure. You know, like I don't want, and you see paper on the streets and I get that, like, you know. Glow so do you think somebody needs to make like an app where you could just like zap a flyer to somebody? Maybe. I don't know what it is. You know, what am I doing? To, you know, one is they just go out and they play great shows. I think video is a big part of it now. It used mm -hmm. to be if you wanted to video show, you had a Chris Lonergan come with like <laughs> with like a ginormous video Still camera big. and lights yeah. and this and, you know, set it up. And you So know, what do they do video wise? Like a tour manager just takes stories and, you know, the quick things. Oh, nice. And puts them up and, you know. Where does he post them? Instagram, Facebook. So if I wanted to follow Southern Avenue, what would at I follow? Southern, at Southern Avenue Music. At Southern Avenue Music, no underscores. Word. One big word. And that's on Instagram and Twitter? And Twitter is at SoAv. Okay, so So for South. Yeah. Southern. Av. And then no music. underscore there no. either. I don't so like... S-O-A... I, do, I, don't, I don't do underscores, man. You don't do underscores? No. It's because you were never a computer programmer. Sorry. Us computer programmers. Sorry, not, not, we, sorry, not we sorry. We use underscores. Great. So we can follow Southern Avenue there. We can follow your progression as a manager, moving them. Hopefully, you guys will pull in a Grammy. Hopefully. In the next 72 hours. That would be great. That would be so great. That would be great. But if not, I, to be 1,000% honest, like just being nominated feels like such an honor. Not just for me, for them. I, I mean, wouldn't even know. It's so validating because my whole life in music has been selling. And effectively, I'm a salesman. Right. I sell music. Yeah. I sell music that I love to people that I think would love it. And I don't mean like selling discs on the street like those hustlers in Times Square. Like, mm -hmm. hey, you like hip hop? You know, like, I always buy that disc. Like, not because well, you're afraid they're going to shoot you. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like... Uh, Sometimes I find them good anyways, but yeah. So it's, um, it's you know, effectively I'm a salesman. Yeah. And like, you have to love and be passionate. You know, we talked about that early on. You have to be passionate about what you're doing or else it's not going to resonate. People don't buy bullshit. Yeah, especially in music. Especially in music. I think for me, as someone who all day long, if we wanted to break it down on the molecular level, is I sell Southern Avenue. Whether it's to mm -hmm. promoters in Europe, whether it's to Rolling Stone magazine, whether it's to whatever, that's what I'm doing. And to be able to have a tentpole, mm -hmm. like... Grammy nomination, Grammy nominated artist, Southern Avenue. It's right. not just some jerk off sitting there like John Schwartz, like, hey, this guy likes the band. It's like, it's someone other than me. You don't need to use the word the general 
I don't, in that situation. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's a bullet point. Like you need to have three strong bullet points to have hmm. the chance to get anyone to buy what you're selling. Well, wait a second. Did we just stumble on a formula? Is there a formula? Well, the three bullet points are always changing. <laughs> is this a thing? And It's a thing. It's, okay, it's my so thing. what is the thing? You need three bullet points. You need points. three good bullet points mm. in order to effectively... Juicy. Market something appropriately, oh. in my opinion. And, I, like, okay. and I think the bullet points change as they get better. So now, so like, you don't want four bullet points. Too much. Too much. Two is not enough. Okay, so what are the three, three bullet points you got for Southern Avenue? Right, right? now, it's like Grammy nominated, you know, 2020 Grammy nominee, Southern Avenue, blah, 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 blah. Right. Second bullet point. First artist signed to Stax Records from Memphis in over 40 years. Ooh. Fucking bullet point. Now, I'm a Stax Record fan. So that's a bullet point. That, to me, is a bullet point. You know? That's a bigger bullet point than the first one, to me, personally. So, because Stax is my shit, dude. That's a bullet point. Third bullet point, it depends who I'm selling it to. Like, you know, played over 15 countries in the last two years. Mm -hmm. Like, you know. The lead singer is one of the most amazing singers on the planet. Is that a bullet point? It could be. So you have to have those three bullet points. If you you can't think of three good things to say about it, then you should just hang them up. Okay, that's fair. I'm John the General Schwartz is not one of those bullet points. No. That's dope. All right, cool. So... You remember I used to manage Chris Barron, lead singer from the Spin Doctors. I, the because first, of you, I got to work with Chris Barron. We wrote some songs together. Yeah. Camouflage. And, um, he was a Camouflage Soul, Camouflage which is Soul. a beautiful song. And he's a lovely guy. I loved the Spin Doctors when I was young, and it was it was surreal to work with him. Ironically, and he's such like a lovely chap. He was a really nice guy. So anyway, that was the first artist I ever managed. Mm-hmm. You know, he was nominated for a Grammy with the Spin Doctors like once. They didn't win. But you could always say, like, Spin Doctors are Grammy-nominated artists. The Spin Doctors are, you know, you could say that forever. They had two of the most massive hits. Two of the most massive U.S. hits in the 90s. And then they were Grammy-nominated, you know what I mean? So I was having Thanksgiving dinner with my family, my uncle, my parents, like, at some restaurant in, in, like, Florida, New York. Yeah, yeah. You know, a couple hours out of the city. My uncle had a farmhouse up there. And uh, I'm in the lobby of this (laughs) restaurant called the Jolly Onion. Yes, that's such an upstate New York restaurant. It was it's the unbelievable. Jolly Onion. So there was a, like a display case, the whole lobby, like with Grammy awards and pictures. Oh, interesting. And I'm like, for me, I'm like, this is weird. Like, is why? Weird. Are and it was all for this dude named Jimmy Stir. Jimmy Stir is. Is that one word, Jimmy Stir? Jimmy Stir. S T E R S T U R R I believe. And that's Jimmy Stir, if you were count. to Google, he should him, go to one word, Jimmy Stir. Jimmy Stir. Well, Jimmy Stir has something like 27 Grammy Awards. Wow. All in polka. <laughs> He's the polka king of the oh. world. So I have The world this, is unfair, folks. So, don't, don't complain that to me. So I have this, this guy's I, got 27 Grammy Awards. I've never been nominated for anything. So I called Chris. <laughs> They're all in polka. So I called Chris. I'm uh, like, dude. Polka's kind of gangster, though, when it gets hot. I was like, dude, like, here's what we're going to do. Because it doesn't matter what your Grammy nomination is in, Grammy nominated not artists. Not anymore. Apparently not. So Apparently it doesn't matter at all. I was like, dude, <laughs> you are going to the studio and we are going to make mm-hmm. the Two Princes Polka. Mm. And we are going to get nominated for a Grammy Award. And then for the rest of our lives, you are going to be Grammy nominated artist, Chris Barron. And he's like, you are fucking insane. I am not doing a polka song. Yeah, he should have fired you on the spot. But it was like no half offense. a joke. It was like half a joke. <laughs> and then like, I'm like, dude, we should really do this polka song. <laughs> yes, and. And I was like, come on, listen. I'm like, I'm like, listen to this polka song. It's not that terrible. I'm like, 
Weirdo Yankovic does polka. <laughs> he like brings out a Casio keyboard and presses the polka button. And he's like freestyle. And like, I'm not going to say he was close to doing it, but he was close to like smiling and laughing about it when we got the memo that they were eliminating polka from the Grammys. Thank God. So Thank it never God. came to fruition. Ah, oh, that's a bummer. I'm so sad. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, John the General Schwartz has been on the Touchdowns All Day with John Barber podcast for the first time, but definitely not the last time. We're going to keep up with him. You heard the socials. Follow Southern Avenue. I'm going to play a Southern Avenue song on the podcast right now. I won't, right? I won't tell our publisher. Go for it. Yeah. I'm going to play one song for you guys. We listened to the whole album last night, and there was so much different stuff. I'm going to play a song for you guys right now. Thank you for being on the show. If you want to listen to John in real time, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern time. Channel 29. Fish, Fish Radio, Sirius XM. Sirius XM. Before you go, there was a little thing on our thing about what happened to Jamon. Jamon still exists. Jamon is there. Jamon. Where, can you tell our people where to listen to Jamon? Jamon is on channel 300 something, which, by the way... Why do you have to say 300 something? Why can't you just give us the number? Because... Don't we Google it? What, what do we we could Google it. They're listening, thinking... Well, because you could find... 300 something, that's what you're coming with right now? Sorry. <laughs> Nobody's perfect, man. Okay. Jam on, so hard? Jam on is on channel 309, which is on most Sirius XM players in the car. You can get it on the app. It's still there. It's still playing the Disco Biscuits. It's playing all of the bands that you love in the world of jam. Right. So we have this situation where... I'm just not on it. You're not on it anymore. Ari's not on it anymore. It's not the station it was, but who's in charge of it now? I don't know. You know, that's a, that's a question for another time. All right. So what we're going to have to do as Jam Pan fans, if you guys subscribe to Sirius like I do, and you want to listen to Jam On, it's 309. 309. But by the way, you just put it on the button. It doesn't it, matter yeah, what the number yeah, you is. Yeah, put in your presets. It's just always put there. Put it on the fucking button. It's done. And then we'll just start listening to Jam On there. That's why I don't know and the let's channel play it from number. There. That's why I don't that's why I don't know the channel number. Right. Because of it's ever my presets. Yeah, of course. I mean look, I listen to a lot of different stations on Sirius, to be completely honest with you. Great so that channel. I listen to the joint. That's my number one. Channel forty two. I, I just I don't know why the joint's my number one, but it is. And the um, woman who runs the joint is like the most awesome human being on the planet. Well tell her I said thank you. I will. She's awesome. I'm a big fan of that station. Shout out to Pat McKay. She's awesome. Pat McKay, thank you for doing your job. I appreciate what you do every day. I listen to Join every day. I don't know why. I just like it the most. I listen to Pulse. Um, look, there's good things going on. The jam bands have been moved to 309 because Fish has consolidated a station all to themselves. And the Grateful Dead is a station. Fish has a station. This is a part of a greater movement of our kind of music into to a wider audience. Yeah. It's just like we're going to have five or six individual stations for jam bands in the next 10 years and that's just where we're going so let's just be a part of that having you on the podcast here is a great thing if Sirius XM was to syndicate the Touchdowns All Day podcast so like when we released the Touchdowns All Day podcast we would also syndicate it on Sirius XM what channel would it go on? Noah Blowing Grace uh, <laughs> <laughs> what channel would the podcast end up on? would it be on the Grateful Dead channel? would it be on the Fish channel? I think, would it be I on think, the Grid Jam on channel? I think obviously would it be it on would, the joint? I think obviously we'd go on the NFL channel <laughs>
SiriusXM.com. We should be on the college football channel. We talk about that all the time. By the way, uh, you know, every NFL game is on SiriusXM. In case you're wondering. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. Do you have any other stories? No, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening, folks. And this has been quite an honor. We're gonna go uh, hang out a little bit. Thank you for listening. And here comes a song that they sent me a little Southern Avenue tune to jam out to. Check it out. Stamina.